This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Will. Hi, I'm Trish. Hi, I'm Koa. We're going to talk about The Long Tomorrow by Lee Brackett. This is a 1955 novel. Uh by uh edmund hamilton's wife <laughs> and that's probably not the way most people think about her um but it's hard to it's hard to talk about her um her other family because i don't think she has any um but i have i found she some had parents definitely uh, probably of, at some point yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they were also at least they were still alive when she and uh, hamilton were courting because um uh, I think I've, I've was an interview or some some introduction to a book somewhere mm-hmm. where she where so they said that uh, that her parents always got angry when Hamilton brought her back a little too late mm. <laughs> and she was already uh, in her twenties by then. Yeah, she um she was a uh, we think of her as a California person, but this is not a California book. Um, she also didn't. She also moved away from California later on and was Hamilton. Not exactly. Oh, partly, or at least partly. Then yeah. She, she, so I actually have quite I a quite a bit of interesting thing about it. What they did was they actually had a a home in the country, uh, mm-hmm. out of outside of California. She's born and died in California. We think of her as a Californian. Um, most of her famous writings uh, are either set in space or set in California. She wrote The Long Goodbye screenplay. She did The Big Sleep screenplay. These are classic, you know, uh, detective California books that are transformed into films about classic de- detective uh, Californian detectives. <laughs> um, and she did some westerns and stuff. But this is the this is the weirdest book I've ever read by any weirdest thing I've read by her. It's it's very different. It's, Super religious, and uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not cool with that. Uh, what do you guys think of this book? I thought it was great. Uh, I um, I read the Wikipedia summary, and it didn't seem so great. I thought, uh, yet another post-apocalyptic uh, uh, technology is evil. Blah blah blah. Yep. But the the craft of it is so wonderful. You really feel immersed in. The heat of the farm, uh, the the uh, dust of the road, the uh, arguments, the the mob scenes are scary. Yes, um, they are. It's just wonderfully, wonderfully well executed, and I'm pretty happy with the ideas in it too. It's very believable. That's the, yes. That's kind of like what I don't like about it. Um, I I grew up in a small town as well as uh, you know in the city, um, and on an island. And, uh, I, I did not like the small town. I did not like the religious, uh, craziness that, uh, sort of infects people. And when you're a kid, you know, you don't know what's what. You have to figure things out. Um, it reminded me a lot of that. Like, just how not so people can be about their religion. And, uh, and yet, um, it's very, as you say, it's very, very well written. Super easy to follow. Nice, nice characterization at every point. I didn't think anybody was unbelievable at all. She's just a really slick, uh, writer of people. 
I also I liked it. I mean, I, I'd read it before some time ago, and um, it's probably one of her most unusual works. It's a very uncommon work for Lee Brackett. Yeah, I, I haven't she seen anything an, like this. She did have a few American small town type story, stories. Another one is, is the queer ones, which is hardly, which is uh, very little remembered. I did the introduction of that for the second for volume two of the rediscovery anthology uh-huh. but uh, it's a story very few people have read this that also has a queer ones also has this small town town in a I think the queer ones is Appalachia this is um and so on so it also has this, this small town town um atmosphere and she really nails this this gossipy and uh, also restrictive small town atmosphere. Yeah. I also grew up in a small, well, it was a suburb, sort of, of a big city, but was also a rural small town. So I felt for this. It's also, I think, a very American book. Because, um, because, um, um, okay, even if, let's just uh, get this out of the way, way, these people would all be dying of cancer and radiation sickness because, um, <sighs> it would not have, uh, it would not have, uh, the, they wouldn't have been spared from the fallout, would have gotten them. It, them. It, this is something yeah, they did not to, quite know in the 50s it, yet. They, you have well, to kind no. of ignore that part. No, I, I think I think it really depends. So um, I, I was thinking about this a lot. Remember, it is a limited nuclear war, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there's, there are definitely cities nuked. Um, this is set 100 years in the future. Half-life of the radiation is not going to be, you know, gone. There would have been it a lot depends of mutations. What sort of uh, the, uh, the iodine is the radioactive iodine is gone. Cesium yeah. is down, but it's not gone. Cesium right. has a half life of thirty uh, something years, and uh, all the other stuff, plutonium and so on, is still there, and it's not going to go away. Yeah, anytime. there's definitely going to be some contamination, um, and we don't see any of that in here. Right? It's zero. It's basically mm-hmm. it's there's if you you know omit certain lines, you wouldn't know. That this wasn't just a rural thing until a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. Just it, it is kind of weird. Heinlein's got that in the forties, so it's not like there people are unaware. Lee Brackett knows about radiation. She chooses did, not. Of course, she chooses not, not to talk about it at all. And mm-hmm. I think part of that might be, you know, the viewpoint characters. Um, they're they're not sophisticates in this stuff. And when we do get to the sophisticates, they do talk about radiation, right? But mm. they talk about it in terms of like it's it's a fear rather than a like a a logically thought through thing. It is a taboo. Um so we can imagine that there's some stuff that, you know, grandma uh remembers uh the mutations, uh, you know, dead babies and cancers and all that stuff. We don't get any of that in this book at all. So it isn't about that. And that is kind of weird. But depending on, uh, you know, how big that war was and how many people died from contamination afterwards, we, we, we could like sort of squint that away. But it is weird that it's not, it's not addressed, especially considering how, how we actually know better now. What the consequences of uh, extended radiation from nukes is than they did I at the time. I think also in the 1950s, they, I mean, they knew radiation was dangerous. They, they've been knowing that far, far longer. Longer. The Radium Girls case was in the 1920s. Yeah. 
20s, which was, which really I think was the first time it was brought out into the open and into mm -hmm. the public mind, but it didn't really penetrate. And, um, for example, one thing is interesting that Asimov always is, he was a chemist and uh, knew, of course, about the dangers of radiation. And he also, he has, um, uh, he has, has nuclear wastelands and everything in some of his books, books. And he also was apparently very, very skeptical of, of, uh, Nuclear energy, but this is this is very common for the time that the, um, the assumption that if there's a nuclear war, then some cities will be wiped out, but uh, everywhere else life will go on. But it yeah. is also a very American book because if you if someone if a, if a European writer, British, I mean, basically um, John Wyndham wrote a very similar book with the Chrysalids mm -hmm. in the nineteen also also I think nineteen fifty five. But it if a European right. writer had written this book. Not everybody, the people wouldn't have turned out to be Amish or Mennonites or something like that, simply because uh, those groups don't, uh, they, ca they came from here originally, but um, our ancestors that, kicked them out. And that war was much out. bigger, though, like um, like the one in, in the Chrysalids, that was like, uh, you know, total planetary nuclear war, whereas the one in here, it seems to have been deliberately shown to be like a limited... We don't know if this one was a total... Well, they won the war. Because we only see uh, some... We only see... Uh, we, only, we know that, city, that the big cities in the US have been destroyed. We know that there's still some kind of government yeah, which can pass have a, uh, amendments to the constitution. That's right. Constitution that they hate cities, but we don't know what happened. We don't know what well, we're told the Soviet Union looks like in this world. Or China, or Europe. We don't know. We heard... We uh, we actually, there's a line about France in there, right? And, and they say, what are they, what are they like in France? And say, probably a lot like us, right? Yeah. Um, so w we don't know anything about what happened to the Soviets. Um, and presuming it was the Soviets who did it, which I think we can. Because well, in the mid-50s, it would have been the, the Soviets are the likeliest uh, yeah, yeah. aspect. Um, <laughs> but she does not focus on that. nuclear war with, uh, with, um, with the U.S., it didn't make any sense at that time. It yeah. still doesn't actually... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we could have been South Africa. Probably wasn't. <laughs> um, what we can say, China wasn't yet. Uh, China wasn't yet advanced enough to have have. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, they didn't have nukes yet in the mid fifties. They they only had nukes from the sixties on. Was. Yeah, and it, it's also we don't get the year of this, but there's some there are some years mentioned early, like in the first chapter yeah, there's a barn built in 1952 or something right like that. and then there's another one f built in uh the previous century and it was like 1854 or something like that and the kid says hardly anyone is around was alive hardly anyone who was alive uh back then is alive today or something like that and i'm like wait a second you know <laughs> if this is a hundred years in the future right uh, from 55 Mm. The, uh, then are people living extra long? Uh, the grandmother, she was a child during the war, right? I had the I'd sense that, that he just really didn't understand. Yes, I think that that's yes, the length of time. You know how long a century is. Uh, so, so nobody would be alive. He just thought hardly anybody. Yeah, it, it, he's so a kid. Also probably don't have dates. I mean, we never see a date mentioned. Not even some kind of. Uh, the year 82 after the, the war or something like That's that, right. that they probably don't, I mean, these are rural people. People, I guess they, they organize their life like rural people also did for a long time in the real world. World, they organize their life by seasons, like mm -hmm. now it's sowing, now it's harvest season, season. They don't organize their life by years, like, like we do. 
at least not as commonly. I'm going to read that section here. It's, uh, um, Grant, uh, here, start at the beginning of the paragraph. Esau flushed a little and muttered that he, he was not afraid, but he glanced around uneasily. They turned the corner of the barn on the gable end up above the door. There were four numbers made out of pieces of wood and nailed on. Len looked up at them. A one, a nine with a chunk gone out of the tail, a five with a little front part missing, and a two. Esau said that that was the year the barn was built, and that would be before even Gran was born. It made Len think of the meeting house in Piper's Run. Gran still called it church, uh, called it a church. That had no, that had a date on it too, hidden away down behind the lilac bushes. That one said 1842, before, Len thought, almost anybody was born. (laughs) He was, he shook his head and overcame with, with a sense of ancientness of the world. Um, I can't read because the light's not turned on. There we go. That helps. So, uh, this is a child's point of view. It's sort of a, um, uh, I think of this as the unreliable narrator, right? And I think that that's actually what this whole book is about. They have these dreams of what this technology was. They get entranced by the the radio. They get entranced by Grand's memories of, you know, uh, having things nice, <laughs> conveniences. But now they're all Mennonites, and they don't like it, <laughs> some of them, right? When we have this uh, society of people who don't like, you know, living the farm life and want to have something more, be mechanical engineers, you know, with electricity and stuff like that, they can leave and come to our society. But here the church oppression is, is, uh, you know, physical. They will stone you to death if you go against the conventions. And then later on in the book, when we see the, uh, the warehouse burning, right? And they're going to burn the whole town down and the kids are getting beat up. Like this is, this is the part of that oppressive, uh, rural uh, stuff. Oh, it's, I, I find it upsetting because I, I remember it being exactly like that. Like you can't have, there's a, it's, it's a weird, um, rural mindset that, it comes from the parents somehow, and then some force through children. I think it also I hated it comes it. from the whole the whole surroundings. Everything is very restrictive. And I mean, the place where I go, it wasn't even that. It was um, it was about eleven kilometers from Bremen city center, but it was still quite. Ru- it's more suburban now, but it was still quite rural at the time. A mix of family who'd moved out into the green in the seven in the sixties and seventies, and farmers who'd lived there all the time and. Uh, it was really restrictive at the school. I just recently talked to someone, someone um, that I, I was. Um, my dad worked in worked in a lot. I was I traveled quite a bit as a kid because my dad worked a lot abroad, and uh, we were in the U.S. for almost a year when I was five, and then we came back when I started school. And um, I was I, I somehow started. I'd, we'd visited Disney World, which was great when you're five years old. Mm-hmm. And I said that at school I was forbidden. Literally, I was told not to talk about Disney World because it was bragging. And I was actually, I wasn't <laughs> bragging. I was just like, uh, okay, I've seen this absolutely amazing place. I want to yeah, tell all you of you about share. how wonderful Disney World is. Mm-hmm. And it was, so this is really the sort of, 
they were very restrictive. I wasn't liked very much because um, I'd seen a bit more of the world than yeah. the rest of these people. I've read a book. The teachers were not. The teachers were not, not these rural people. Some of them were still around, but the teachers were... They had gone to university, but the teachers was in 1960, 1968, uh, anti-Vietnam War, America is evil generation. So um, they did like it. There was another girl who'd traveled. Her parents had been had been uh, aid workers, or no, not there were aid workers in uh, India. And she talked about India and talked about India in the really literally worst cliches about, oh, they all have leprosy or something. That was okay. Of course, at the time, I didn't know that the whole leprosy thing was a, Complete terrible and poverty thing was complete, complete terrible cliche. But that was okay. But uh, talking about Disney World, oh no, you can't do that. Mm. Does not fit our worldview. <laughs> yeah. So what, that's, yeah. What about you, Trish? Do you have this uh, American experience? I, obviously, I was in Canada, um, but, <laughs> um, you know. I think small towns are alike almost everywhere in the world. Even if the religion is, this, this oppressive religiousness is more of an American thing or North American thing. Yeah, I mean Canada has men, has lots of Mennonites, so probably not your religion. Yeah. You're from from British Columbia, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so no, the Mennonites are in Ontario, but I've, yeah. I've actually there's I've Mennonites here as well, but they're not uh, you know super common. We have Duke we, we have, have some now again in Germany, which are and fun. that's because the Mennonites uh, they most of them went to North America and Canada and so on. But some went to Russia, and now yeah, they're all after over the, the world. end of the Soviet Union, they came back. So we suddenly have Mennonites again. In you get them in Guatemala; they're all over the world. Yes. <laughs> what about you, Trish? Did you have the small town oppressive, uh, whack job religious experience that you uh, escaped from? <laughs> no, actually, I grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina, which um, uh, decades ago was the biggest city in. Uh, North Carolina and still is pretty cosmopolitan. Um, it it uh, actually was the state capital in early, early colonial days. Um, anyway, uh, um, I grew up in a Presbyterian church, which I would call fairly progressive. I mean, I knew there were Southern Baptists and other fundamentalists around and that it got way more like that out in the countryside, but it didn't really touch my, touch me growing up ex uh, except as you know, something I was aware of that happened to other people. And a lot of that was through books actually. Hmm. What about Will? He, he's a city boy, I, I think as well. Well, I got some of this growing up. Um, uh, you know, I'm just down the road from this thing called the Creation Museum, which is this um, uh, monument to ignorance that has been built uh, where, uh, you know, it's this whole museum where they make the argument that evolution is a lie mm -hmm. and that based on the truth found in the Bible, you can uh, know that, you know, Noah like literally had the ark and there were literally dinosaurs on the ark. <laughs> um, and you know, you have these biblical, um, creatures, Leviathan and Bemoth were just dinosaurs straight up. Um, and so they have this whole music. It makes some weird arguments. Like, like for some reason, like they have this definition of life that doesn't include plants. So like plants aren't actually alive. Mm. Um, and so they're, they, they really go to some places. Uh, and it's, the same sort of uh, American Protestantism um, you get, it's based on 
just like fear of science in some kind of way or fear of it's, knowing it's a it's a it's like a, a, it's an alternative authority yeah i I, and I think that that's the really insidious part is it's it's all about control and authority so it isn't that the they have the facts on their side it's that they're they're challenging the authority that i have as a mean bastard who can <laughs> discipline people and it, it it even comes from the children right like um so that it's uh you can't talk to like i i think about how um how for adults it's not the same at all but as a kid you're like literally thrown into a school right you don't choose to go there they take you there <laughs> and they lock you in there for eight hours a day <laughs> Whatever it is. And then, you know, you're indoctrinated by a whole bunch of people. And uh, as an adult, you can just choose to leave, right? You can go, you don't like a business? Don't go back there. As a kid, you have, don't have that choice. So I think being in a small town for an adult is kind of fun. <laughs> I, I've been in a, small towns as an adult. You say, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Just go about your business, right? But as a kid, you don't have, you're still forming your understanding of reality and it, it is super oppressive. So I really sympathize with Len and Esau. Um, you know, they're sinning by getting the radio. That, that's natural. They're even sinning by going to the wrong type of religious meeting. Stealing, stealing books. They go to this other, sympathize um, with that. That they commit worse sins, like having a radio and stealing. Also, of course, uh, like the thing with the books, because it shows how dreadful the education is. There's basically no education. There's almost no education. The education is entirely out of the Bible, and uh, except for math, right? Everything out of the Bible except for math. Right. So reading and writing and math. Sums. Just sums. Not not differential equations or anything complicated. Yeah, nothing too complicated. Someone might build an atomic bomb again (laughs) if they get too complicated (laughs) math. But yes, it's a... It's a literally... Deliberately kept stupid. And kept down. Mm -hmm. I mean, it also... um, uh, I've heard this once. Uh, once that the Amish are still uh, still have some kind of exception in the U.S. that they they only have to have eight that their kids only can go to school for only eight years rather than twelve or what twelve lucky, is a regular lucky uh, them in a certain yes, sense. Is, um, is, um, <laughs> so basically, even if they want to run away, they don't even have the they want to go away and they are they can go away, but they don't have the education to survive in the regular world and and uh, will need help to get it get it. So this is. Um, Yes, it's insidious because they are keeping them stupid. And they do have, even though they do have a few books which actually have some actual information in them, in them, even if it's old and they don't understand it very well, but, um, but they are deliberately kept down by this, uh, this schooling. Yes, I mean, the, the religious oppression is that's something we, in this form, we don't have it. It's probably in the very Catholic areas. I come from a, my part of Germany is major, is majority Lutheran Protestant. And the religious oppression there really isn't any. The Lutherans are pretty mellow, mainstream people, fairly progressive. Progressive. There's there may be there's occasion there's an occasional throwback, but um, they just kicked out a preacher for saying gays are evil. So yes, they're nice, mellow, progressive people. Most of the Catholics are nice too, but there's but um, majority Catholic regions, and the first one is only about thirty kilometers. So if I drive thirty kilometers uh, south, I'm suddenly in a very Catholic region. 
they're a bit more oppressive. And I think it can be more, it is probably gets worse in rural Bavaria or something like that, or used to in the 50s. 50s. But uh, all of these weird, weird uh, American, these Baptists and uh, whatever they're all called, of these, these American, weird American churches, uh, churches, we don't have these people. And they're not quite, we also don't have as much, as many religious nutcases. We have a few, but they are literally everybody else chances as, oh, they're weird cult. There's a lot of religious nutcases <laughs> in this book. Uh, I'm glad yeah, you so brought up the, book ca- is the Catholic much everybody thing. is a religious nutcase. Yeah, the, I'm glad you brought up the Catholic thing, because this book made me think of sort of the opposite like book to this, which is A Canticle for Leibowitz. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. Lots of uh, points of resonance. Um, you know, in yeah, that, you definitely. have some religious things going on. But uh, their religion guides them to um, try to preserve knowledge rather than destroy it or mm. be afraid of it. And I, I don't know. I just think there's a, like it goes back to this being a very American book, yes. and like this is just like a strong like vein in American Protestantism is you want to run away from, um, uh, like science essentially. Um, Whereas you don't like, whereas it doesn't seem like when you have this like extreme Catholic science fiction book, you don't have the like turning away from science that uh, exists in a, a Canticle for Leibowitz. Of course, um, also the it was um, Catholic monks who preserved a lot of um, knowledge from antiquity by copying books and so on. So the Catholic Church, even though they were also, they can be very anti-science. Science and were very anti-science. Science in the Middle Ages, they also preserved a lot of knowledge. So I think I think another book this reminds me of is Davy by Edgar Pangborn, which is also a very similar setup. Only that there's a nuclear war. Everything is uh, everything is very rural, very scattered, very oppressive, religious. Only that there are mutants too. <laughs> I think I think yeah, uh, one way of uh, understanding this is is more about power than it is about science or anti-science because the Mennonites in this story are the ones who were most equipped to survive the post-apocalyptic zone. That's why so many people became Mennonites afterwards. This is how you do it. You can make your own carts. You can make your own clothes. You can make your own food. You're not reliant on the cities or foreign exchange or anything like that. So their power grew, and their power comes not just from putting kids in school and denying them science, but, but also by by the fact that they control the books. So when this, the books are stolen and they, the principal is asking, you know, who stole the books? Uh, or it's, I guess it's a schoolmaster. Um, they ask the kids, they try and find out who it was. Um, but they don't, you know, collectively punish them. It is, it's, it's a more like we have these books. They're not for you. And maybe it's because you're too young. But they're not throwing those books away, right? In fact, they're concerned that they're going to be lost. So it's more about power, I think, than, you know, denial of the science and, and sort of the power of it being dangerous knowledge. So the, when we eventually find out, um, what Barter Town is, and I, I was hoping it was spelled the same way it was in Mad Max <laughs> Beyond Thunderdome, because yeah. I was hoping we would have two men enter, one man leave. <laughs> Yeah, and that's we what I've been that. thinking when I was listening to the audiobook, but then when Spelled I switched differently, to, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so, uh, like, this and book, no wonder whether the Mad Max, whether George Miller ever read this book. I doubt it. After this town. I doubt it just because it's so, uh, very different. Um, but it's a great movie. Uh, it's, it's not a great Mad Max movie, but it's a great movie. And it has a, um, it has, uh, you know, some wonderful tropes. But the thing is, is that story about, you know, kids going to a, uh, metropolis where they have electricity, right? And they have power and they have gasoline. Well, they have methane, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, a kind of similar story of, people escaping from a religious whack job cult. Um, but you know, the city is not what they thought it was. Right. So yeah, it's possible. George Miller did (laughs) read this book and says, I'm going to, you know, make it a more of an action adventure. Whereas this is, is this is more like a tragedy, this book, right? It's more like a person's actual life story. And I'm like, that's a tragic life story. You live in tragic times. You had tragic things happen to you. Um, it was a coming of age book in a certain sense. Ooh, kind of sad, pathetic. There really is no way out for, for them. I mean, Bartherstown is not that much. Uh, okay, they have electricity, which is better, but they're basically, but they're not that much, but they're also not that much better. They're also restrictive and the people are not allowed to leave and, uh, mm-hmm. and they're, they're dealing with this completely ridiculous, uh, Ridiculous tasks they've been dealing with, they've been doing for eight, for eighty years or more, more and um, and it's going to go computer. on. town is not actually trying to improve anything either, and probably they also couldn't simply because the Mennonites uh, knights and the other bunch, uh, the other new Ishmaelites or whatever they're called, would stop them. And, right, and as 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 it said several times, if they actually tried proselytizing, they would just uh, get their whole town destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, yeah, I think there's... I think there's a lot of wise adults in this book. Like, um, they say, you know, what could we have done? And we don't have an army, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just trying to, you know, do the best they can, going from town to town, helping kids out who are like getting into trouble and going to be in, you know, doing wrong wrong think. They're not trying to hurt anybody. They're just trying to do the best, muddle through however they best they can. But the the title of this book, The Long Tomorrow, it it doesn't really tell you anything until you actually read the book. And then you say, aha, uh-huh. yeah, so it's like uh, always tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, all that hoping of what Barterstown's going to be. Escaping, and you know, maybe we can just live in this city, maybe we just build a city here. Uh, and now, refuge is destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the life there is, you know, wrecked. And it's a government oppression, but bottom up, uh, government oppression too, because people believe in the values of, of that, you know, you can't have more than one, what is it, five, five warehouses makes a city or something, right? Uh, it was something like, uh, I think 200 houses uh, were allowed and uh, in a certain, certain space and uh, 1,000 people. And yeah. the warehouses were also limited. But yes, it's, uh, I mean, we also never see any representatives of, okay, there's this judge, but he's a, but he's a local judge. We never see any representatives of this government. But he seems like everybody still is a government. Everybody Everybody seems so reasonable. The judge, I, I understand the judge's (laughs) point of view. And, and what's the, what's the uh, guy who guides the kids? I can't remember his name. 
Starts with an Mr. H. Mr. Hofstetter. Hofstetter, yes. right. Mr. Hofstetter. So, he, he, yeah, this that was one thing Germans. I really liked was that, as you say, Jesse, the judge was reasonable. You know, his arguments made quite a lot of sense. Um, and uh, I really liked that there were very few caricatures um, of the major characters. I don't in think this there was any. There, no, no. Well, I mean, the mob itself. Um, uh, yeah. But... Yeah, I, I, I even thought that was really interesting. You know, you had the people, once the town was burning, they didn't get mad at the uh, farmers who came into town to b- burn the town. They were mad at at um, uh, the warehouse builder. Who, Dulinsky. Dulinsky, who was, you know, stirring up trouble. Just by trying, trying to do to capitalism, man. Just a little bit, <laughs> yep. um, you know. And then, and and then they tried to make uh, you know our protagonist a scapegoat for the whole thing. It was, but it all felt so believable. How you know they were just turning around looking for a target. You know they hadn't done anything either to stop uh, Delinsky or to guard the town. They just stood by and let it all happen. And then they found a scapegoat to you know try to hang to take out their frustrations on. And I just thought it was all so believable and well done. Too believable. That's the, that's the, what makes it so horrible, right? It's like, this is, this is a very depressing book. It doesn't feel depressing while you're reading it, but like, nothing good happens to anybody, really. It's just sort of people muddling through and doing their best. And, you know, he, they abandon their families, right? It's horrible. But I mean, um, Len and Iso do find both find a part, do find both find love, and Iso has a kid. So okay, yeah. but uh, and uh, Barter's Town is a little better than what's the other one called Piper's Run or so on. So it's um, I'm never but, returning uh, yes, to Piper's it's, Run it's is a tragedy, a, right? Like I can't a, go it's back not a there. Good, uh, it's not really a good ending. They will they will live, and but uh, the kid, which is uh, Iso's kid, which is born. Towards the end of the book, uh, book will probably not have a much better life than his father. Father, even if he lives in Barter's Town, they yeah. won't. Um, it won't get better. They, it won't get get better because it's, uh, at least not until more people shake off this uh, religious fanatism, and uh, just say, okay, uh, we will build cities, we will have technology. Because, uh, but um, but um, that's that's also the thing. It's always a mob that's keeping everybody down. Down. There is no real, you don't, at least you never see any external force. There is no U.S. Army sweeping in to burn down cities. They, yes, they do it to themselves. Len is told that he, he's got, his younger brother is now married and has kids. And it, like, has no effect on him. Mm. And, then, and he later says, you know, I'm never going back to Piper's Run. And it's like, this is not good, right? He, no, it's it, not. But, um, uh, it should have been the return of the prodigal son, right? You made a mistake. You go back. You little wiser. There's a, like, this should be a, a happy biblical story. And it, instead, it's like a horrible biblical story. It's a looking back at the pillar of, pillar of salt sort of story. But uh, would Len still be welcome in Piper's Run and with his family? He probably wouldn't be because he has been a sinner, even if he, or he would be would be whipped and abused again for, for dabbling with forbidden knowledge, knowledge, if not killed. So I, I suspect it's probably better well, to stay away from Piper's Run and his family. That's why he's staying away, probably. But, <laughs> but 
you know, what did what did, what did he do that was so wrong? <laughs> you know, uh, to us it's not wrong, but it's it is very wrong to these, these to these very fanatical people. People, they are. I mean, interesting is also that uh, I don't know what the image in the U.S. is, but the image in in you know, most people don't here don't even know that Mennonites exist, but they do know about Amish, and the the image is mostly they are quaint and a little weird, but but harmless and and peaceful people. So. <laughs> Literally, murder and Mennonites, I think, also, they're actually passive. I think they actually left, left, um, some left uh, because they, they were forced into military service and didn't want to. Yeah. Want to. So they're, so they're actually pacifists. So actually, so murder Mennonites and murder Amish are very unusual, usual thing to. Yeah, the Mennonites don't do the murdering. Right. It's no, the no, that's the new Ishmaelists or whatever yeah. they're called. Well, those, those, the, those really were actually the yeah, the new Ishmaelists were um, like the the stick on the outside that is like, well, you don't want to end up like them, right? Mm-hmm. But I I kept thinking of uh, those. If you guys remember the in The Walking Dead, there's like a, a group that lives with the zombies. I don't remember what. Oh called. yeah, right. But uh-huh. they kind of reminded me of that. This like very harsh philosophy of we're we're punishing ourselves because that's the right thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, take the but discipline. But it's also very hypocritical because they survive by taking the gunpowder from the civilized people. Uh, and, you know, they they kind of demand it as tribute or else there will be trouble. Well, um, it but, sounds you know, hypocritical. They are surviving by the product of the civilization. So. I, I was thinking about that quite a bit because they, we never really spend any time with them, right? And what little hints we do are very interesting. Um, and they you talk about how the kids look and how they freeze to death and all this stuff. It actually reminded me a lot of like the Indians. Um, you know, we don't get a lot of, uh, race stuff in here or, you know, genocide stuff, but what we actually have there is there's a whole people who've been made homeless, right? And they live uh, on the chair. This is the logic of this. Uh, you know, they live on the charity of us hardworking farmers. Um, and uh, I remember my grandmother talking about uh, when she lived in Saskatchewan in the dirty 30s. She would always talk about, you know, somebody would show up on the farm and they would give them food and water and drink and a place to sleep. And then they would move on. And he's like, well, what is this caused by? All sorts of stuff. But your job is not to, you know, think of them as leeches, but rather it's like our duty. And so there, there's a weird dynamic. So it seems like they're hi- hypocrites, right? Uh, but everybody in this, this culture of, that we see is oppressed by the past and what happened. And now the, oppression that has come from the law uh is making things um worse in a kind of way right because there could be a recovery and we could you know use the fruits of knowledge uh not just to grow food and make clothes but to uh help people be educated about stuff and not only religiously controlled and so those other people on the outside, they're like a stick. But I would love to have seen a little bit more of like why they're like that. I, I had a feeling like maybe Len 
and Esau could end up with those people at some point, and they don't. So uh, in reading the reviews of this book, I found a lot of people were like, uh, I think it's even maybe on the cover, yeah, which it says, um, New York Times review says, by far Lee Brackett's best novel to date and comes awfully close to being a great work of science fiction. Um, there's a kind of a damning of the, uh, of the novel yeah, in that, right? That is, that is too faint praise. This is a really good book. It is a good book, but as it goes, the, the hopes that we have, that Len and Esau have, are sort of destroyed. And at the end, uh, it feels like nothing good happened, right? Well, you can take it that way. I think it uh, is more along the lines of, you know, thinking that there are quick fixes and Edens that you can escape to is childish. Um, and certainly Lynn isn't happy <laughs> at the end of the book. Nope. But um, uh, it's it's... I I do think um, the 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 barterist town people continuing to work maybe it is to them becoming more like their own kind of cult than actual science but um, uh, I I think yeah it's not an uplifting book that makes you think yeah we should be doing like that it's it's more of a telling people you know don't give yourself false hopes that things are going to turn, turn out right just because you are, uh, you want to go think and be happy and be free. You're going to have to work for stuff and maybe you won't see good results in your lifetime. I think a lot, a lot about these days with so many disappointing things in politics and reversions and regressions. Um, and, People who have never seen certain kinds of oppression are are now, you know, seeing things moving towards being reenacted into law um, to discriminate against people. Um, So, you know, and people are like, oh, we had it good and then we failed and that's it. But you have to think about the long cycle of things and working working continually towards progress and not just thinking you're going to defeat the big bad and then everything's going to be great. There's, you have to think about a life of working towards better things. Also, there really isn't a big bad in this book. I mean, the nuclear war took, uh, took place um, 80 to 70 to 80 years ago. So that's not a, so that's not a big bad anymore. The, the closest thing to a big bad is religious fanatism, and um, this is nowhere nowhere near being resolved uh, towards the end of the book. It's just uh, that they can maybe slowly work towards making things better for everybody. It, it's it's almost like um, Barterstown is supposed to be found the foundation, you know, from the foundation by Asimov. Absolutely. <laughs> but the problem is, is it it's like they're not even reading the books, really. They're doing some technical stuff but they're waiting mm-hmm. on this robot <laughs> or computer and to... they're working on this one like very specific problem they're still yeah, caught yeah. up in like how do we prevent the destruction of cities in the next nuclear war yeah. where and the answer is we don't know <laughs> well by yeah. we, we are not nowhere close to having anything like uh, like i mean 
they want to prevent the, the destruction of cities in a nuclear war, but they basically don't even have uh, they have gunpowder and, fl- and probably flintlocks or something like that. They they are nowhere near having anything like a nuclear like nuclear bombs. Uh, it seems they, the people of Barterstown seem to have gotten. It was pr- probably some kind of res- bunker. It's, it's obviously a bunker of some kind. It was some kind of research installation, and they, they seem they've mm. gotten stuck on this one problem. Problem instead of maybe dealing with some some other stuff, which might be a lot more helpful than dealing with this one problem. I mean, they don't even need nuclear power. Power. It would be helpful to just have conventional fossil fossil power. Would be a lot helpful to the to the people. Uh, people a lot, but um, they're stuck on this one problem, and they've been stuck on it for 80 years, and will probably still be stuck in in another 80 years. Yeah, the science was really funny, because it's like, we're working on creating a force field that stops fusion and fission. It was very Mm hand-wavy. It makes no sense. Almost magical thinking. (laughs) Yeah, it's magical power. I mean, also the division between Nuclear bombs, bad. Nuclear power, good. Is a good, peaceful use of nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. It's a very 50s, 60s concept because uh, we know now that uh, nuclear power can be extremely dangerous and is best not used at all. All I mean, but this was before. I mean, uh, there have been accidents with nuclear power power for as long as we've had nuclear power mm-hmm. power and um, there had been accidents but they were usually small scale contained to one facility and uh, the first real the first bigger nuclear incident the wind scale fire didn't uh, did not happen until 1957 so two years after this was uh, so two years after the book uh, book chernobyl didn't happen until 30 one year after Fukushima, even longer. So uh, 50 yeah, there's some so, intervening stuff, but they're, they're not actually that dangerous compared to like other power systems as well. Well, I'm very anti. I mean, I'm. I mean, in Germany, especially in my part of Germany, everybody is anti-nuclear power. We are phasing the last few power stations out at the end of mm-hmm. the year, and I will be very happy. Especially since three of the last three, I think we still have five, and three of them are in North Germany, mm-hmm. Germany, where we never wanted them. No, I've never in my life known anybody in my surrounding who wanted nuclear power. It was always, always opposed, hated, disliked, and they built these things anyway. Way and uh, the people who wanted them were apparently uh, apparently further south, but they didn't, uh, but they didn't have the, the rivers for the cooling mm-hmm. water. Mm-hmm. So we are phasing it out, yeah. and I will be glad to see it gone. Yeah, it's gone. Just, I will be even uh, gladder to see. I will be just as glad to see lignite coal gone, which is sadly still used, even though it should have been phased out. Yeah. Phased out. Um, and Germany is making ago. lots of strides towards electricity through sun, even though it's a fairly overcast country, right? I um, have um, and wind I can, and such, but I have power. I have solar power on this. I have solar power. And right now I'm in trouble because uh, my the inverter, which actually converts the uh, power from the solar cells into uh, into electricity I can use. The inverters mm-hmm. have two solar arrays. One inverter is broken. And of course it broke on the hottest day of the day of the year and just <sighs> before the weekend. I went, <laughs> so now I'm hoping that in, that next week uh, the repair person will show up because right now I'm not having enough power. But mm-hmm. normally... Uh, Normally, unless it's a very odd time, I have enough power for power and... Oh, it's raining. <laughs> Normally, I have enough power power to, at least for the house and uh, and also to to sell. But it was also, it was heavily supported with grants and uh, and um, that you could sell your power for high prices. So, so Germany does have a lot of support, support mm-hmm. for the, for, 
any solar. kind of uh, power, wind power, power mm -hmm. solar, and uh, also things like, uh, which is lesser, I don't know why this isn't more known, cogeneration units, which is basically, you have a furnace, which you need anyway, especially here you need it in winter, mm -hmm. but your furnace also has a generator and creates energy. Right. But, yeah. yeah, but the fossil fuels, so there's always trade-offs. The thing is, is, um, we, we don't, you and I don't think about this in religious terms, you know, like, no, um, you, you don't uh, say, um, nuclear power is against God. <laughs> <laughs> you say, I'm worried about the dangers of it, right? And that's some far more reasonable. And, and, and as adults, we can, talk about it and especially you know when we haven't been oppressed with our knowledge bases like these people have right getting to barterstown is like getting to the library right mm -hmm. they have a radio they're broadcasting <laughs> there like i don't even know how that radio they stole like even uh, did it have a good battery in it because they play with it a lot right <laughs> Yeah. Um, there are radios that you don't need to have batteries in that you just pick up the radios. Like I had one of those as a kid. You put it in your ear and you can actually get power from the radio waves themselves. But that's not the kind of radio they had. So I was like, Oh, um, as, uh, this awesomeness of finding the box, the mysterious box, so important mm -hmm. for uh, uh, associating. I almost felt like. Um, that this book was not actually a science fiction book about nuclear war at all, but rather was an allegory for growing up, um, in the radio age, um, which Lee Brackett would have, right? Mm -hmm. Um, she, you know, grew up to be a movie, uh, movie screenwriter and, you know, wrote television and, uh, you know, in publishing industry, but she would have grown up as a kid, as a radio kid. You know. She was born in 1915, so that was uh, so that was so she would have seen the first radios come, the ones which still had these and it's um, magical earphones. She would have seen them come in in her lifetime. She was a, probably a small child, so she was probably a kid when the first when the family got their first radio. And and it is a it is a literally magical experience. If you turn on the radio now, it's not a magical experience, but it was when I was a kid. You know, being on an island with no power. Uh, you know, being in your backyard with a little crystal radio plugged into your ear, getting, getting mysterious transmissions that no one else can, can hear. Mm -hmm. Very, very powerful. And it is a form of education as well. We of course also have a, we still, we have a lot of fiction and also movies about the magic of radio. There's one I remember which I don't think anybody else knows. It was called The Adventures of Fatty Finn about a, I think it was from Australia, a movie. Mm -hmm. It was a children's movie from the, must have been from the 1970s or 80s. I saw it as a kid on TV and it was, uh, it was about a boy who desperately wanted a radio set, one of those crystal radio mm -hmm. sets, sets with the earplug. It was, this was the absolute one thing and he did everything to get this set and took place in some kind of, of, um, race uh, with wooden, what are they called in English? Those, those wooden, those weird wooden, those cars which are literally wooden boxes. Mm -hmm. boxes soapbox. So, soapbox so, racing. Oh, he really calls them soapbox. We also call them soapbox. So yeah. Okay, so what takes place in ta takes uh, part in a soapbox race and gets in fight with fights with other with uh, another gang of other kids and uh, then his father steals his mind it's really and in the end he gets this radio and it's really a magical experience and um so yes even though I never experienced this obviously 
obviously, but um, I've seen enough uh, enough fiction about it, and also heard from people who were old enough to enough still to um, to have my grandparents and so on, who were of, of the age that they were already that they were children or even young adults when the radio came in came in that I could that I could sympathize with it. Absolutely. So uh, I I think that uh, that a lot of the book has to be drawn from her own life experience. And I found some uh, something really amazing I want to read for you guys. Um, so one of the weird things about uh, Lee Brackett, uh, you know, I'm always doing the public domain clearances. I look at, you know, when something was published, and then I go and look the copyright records of, up on it. Um, a lot of her stuff is public domain, and a lot of it is not. Uh, the stuff that is a public domain I put up, the stuff that isn't, I, I kept noticing a pattern, and that is, uh, you know, the copyrights are renewed not by her or by her husband, but rather by a, a bank. And I was like, oh, what Yeah, what I also this saw about? this. There's a copyright, uh, there's a copyright. They probably, I suspect the bank somehow ended up with a, with a copy there's probably a trust or something yes, like that because it, and Hamilton the executors didn't have kids. of their estate right they didn't have kids so the money goes to something we don't mm-hmm. know what that is because we don't have access to the will and I also wonder whether oh. the bank got the retro Hugo she won <laughs> and the, the actual Hugo she won and she won the post she won a posthumous Hugo for the screenplay for the Empire Strikes Back that's a good retro. question I, I don't know know the answer to that to I might have to, uh, I, I think I, I actually know the, the admins, who was the guy who was a Hugo admin. I may ask, ask him, okay, who edits, just question, where did they go? Because they, because Hugos tend to, especially retro Hugos tend to end up with, in strange places if there, when there's no recipient to be found. Found because there were no children or something like that. Mm-hmm. If you can find that out, Cora, I would be very interested. Yeah, I will simply that. ask Nicholas White, uh, White or Kevin Stanley if they know where the Retro Hugo's Folly Bracket went. So, because it's really interesting uh, to know who has a went. So, uh, also, this was actually the first book by a woman nominated for Hugo. The first solo work. There was also in 1956, and this is actually the first, it was the third year of Hugo's and the first year for which we have nominated, we are finalists. We don't have any finals for the first two years. Lost out to Heinlein's Double Star, which is a very good book. Good book. So I think the one I would have voted for that year was End of Eternity by Asimov, which is a complete, which is a big favorite of mine. Mine. But um, this was the first book by a woman ever nominated for Hugo in the third year we had Hugos. And it wasn't even the only female. There was also a Kutner Moore story in a short story or novelette nominated the same year. So... Yeah, this is the first book by a woman nominated for Hugo, so she never won one in her lifetime. Only the posthumous one and two retro Hugos, also posthumous, obviously. I want to talk about for a minute that um, uh, she wrote the book, obviously, as a woman, but her protagonist and his shadow, Esau, they were both men, and the women in this book are even far more circumscribed than the men, because apparently they only exist to be wives. Um, and uh, e- even even the girl that Lynn falls in love with, um, uh, she has no other thought than to escape, um, because she thinks it'll be better on the outside, although it turns out not, not to be. 
Um, and uh, I, I wondered, you know, why, I guess you get a better story with the idea of the civilization that Lee Brackett had come up with if you have your protagonists be uh, uh, boys and men um, than if you have some woman just wanting to escape. But, you know, even in supposedly enlightened Barterstown uh, or the silver mining town that it was its cover city, there's no thought of uh, any enlightened change and letting women have a larger role. Even there in Barterstown, you know, there are no women scientists. It's all just men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're really quick to make sure that that couple gets married. They're like, this is really important that <laughs> you guys get married like stat. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like th- we can't be having this. Right. I, I think you're short shrifting uh, Gran because I thought her scene. Oh, I to, loved Gran. She's Gran is amazing. I love her. Such Gran was her chocolate bunnies. She's always <laughs> deferring to the kid's dad, but but yeah, what she's dreaming about and what she was loving and what she she what she says is terrific. And it is so so obvious, um, made clear through the text that she had to keep her mouth shut all these years just to survive she came from a city a better place she had hopes and dreams but you know things happened and she ended up just having to get married and to that's defer the tragedy to the men, of this to, the book. men to the men always mm-hmm. and just you know even when lynn asks her she she tells her first better ask your pa mm-hmm. and he finally gets her going uh, that red dress yeah the red dress Music and ladies and beautiful and toilets that left clean their shoulders toilets. all bare. <laughs> I thought it would look like that when I got big. Picture books and Mr. Bloomer's drugstore with the ice cream and the mm. chocolate rabbits at Easter. Pa came out the door. Lynn got up and went down to the bottom of the steps. Pa looked at him and Lynn crumbled inside thinking that life had been nothing but trouble for the last three weeks. Water, said Gran, that ran out of shiny faucets when you turned them, and a bathroom right in the house, and electric light. Uh, and then Pa, you know, berates them. Um, pa said, Mother. She glanced up at him sidelong, and her eyes were like two faded sparks, snapping and flaring. She said, Flat hat. Yep. Now, Mother. I wish I had it back, said Gran. I wish I had a red dress and a TV and a nice white porcelain toilet and all the other things. It was a good world. I wish it hadn't ended. And Pa says it ended because it was evil. (sighs) It's so great. What a great passage that is. Mm -hmm. Uh, All the evocation of how grand still dreams of the world that was and the sadness of uh, knowing that at least for her, it's never coming back, and of her having to hold her tongue all these years and bow her head to the men who say that that life was evil when she know it wasn't evil. Yep, that's great writing. It's also, where you, I mean, um, the life grandma dreams of it is basically the the post-war American dream. It's a dream with uh, with suburban houses with. Uh, I mean, uh, running water wasn't uh, was uh, still a new thing for many people in the fifties, fifties, mm-hmm. especially for older people. people. And, uh, too. Yes, um, power TV was, of course, uh, 
the great game the great game changer he, those were all things which would have been been brand been still new for many people in the fifth in the fifties and sometimes even out of reach i mean even I was a kid kid I still had a classmate who didn't have a i still knew people who didn't have telephones phones who had to um, who had to either who had to go to a neighbor neighbor to use a phone because they didn't have one or you had to call the neighbor if you wanted to talk to them them so this is um so yes it's it's very it's the the picture grand 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 um, paints is a picture of the the suburban american dream of the 1950s 50s and also let's just say that it wasn't that great a time for women either the women had been the women had been working in the factories and also in in world war ii and then they were basically kicked out and sent back to the sent back to the home and um, to hang out in suburban towns and um, it was not easy for a woman to be a scientist in the 50s there was some but uh, it was very very difficult or to have any kind of career that was a bit more advanced than be a secretary for a few years until you marry the boss yeah and unfortunately we've seen that in crisis times women do tend to lose their rights immediately look at the mm -hmm. covid pandemic yeah, and how course, many women uh, Ended up, the women well, there aren't schools, so to... the women have to do the child caring, yeah. and so the women, a lot of women left the workforce and mm -hmm. probably won't get back to it. I, th I uh, think so this women... is probably why Lee Brackett and Edmund Hamilton didn't have any kids, um, I want, and why they ended up having their executor be a bank. So yeah, we don't know where uh, the money goes um, about. I would say about half of her stuff is public domain and half isn't. So I did some research and I found this article. I think it's really interesting because um, <clears throat> we do think of her as a Californian and she was, but she was also not. So I'm going to read this. this is from 2015. Uh, Kinsman. Now, Kinsman is in the Mahoning Valley, which is in Ohio and uh, Pennsylvania. Um, so they're in the Ohio town of kinsman uh star wars fans eagerly await thursday for the latest chapter in the science fiction saga but f a few mahoning fans realize that more than 40 years ago a kinsman home is where the force awoke for the first <laughs> the for the series first sequel lee brackett prolific science fiction author and screenwriter wrote the first draft of the 1980 uh empire strikes back from the house where she spent her summers in that town until her death in 1978. Brackett is best known for her screenplays uh, for iconic films such as The Big Sleep, uh, the 1945 detective movie starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, Rio Bravo, a 1959 western starring John Wayne and Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson, Long Goodbye, released in 1973 starring Elliot Gould. That movie is a masterpiece, people. Um, and The Empire Strikes Back, considered by most Star Wars buffs to be the best of the franchise's six movies. Uh, Kinsman Connection. On Thursday, less than two weeks after the what would have been Brackett's 100th birthday, the newest Star Wars film will hit theaters. The Force Awakens is the seventh installment in the saga. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, I'm going to skip down. Um, Kinsman is a town of 2,000 on the northwestern edge of Trumbull County that is skirted by a sprawling farmland at its center, populated with 
quaint historical properties. Brackett lived there with her husband, fellow sci-fi writer Edmund Hamilton, a Youngstown native. Edmund Hamilton was a writer of Batman and Superman comic books, as well as sci-fi short stories. He was the brother of the well-known Vindicator columnist Esther Hamilton. Vindicator's the newspaper. Uh, Brackett and Hamilton spent more than 20 summers at the farmhouse, which was situated across the street from a home shared by the Hamilton sisters, the Hamilton's, by Hamilton sisters after they purchased it in the 1950s. In 1946, Edmund Hamilton and I decided to pool our talents and got married. Somehow or another, though, both of us planned to live on the coast. Though both of us planned to live on the coast, we wound up in a century and a quarter old farm old farmhouse in a small Ohio town where the deer and the woodchucks quite literally play. And we like it. Brackett is quoted as saying, according to the Vindicator Files, I work in a small white wooden room under the eaves of our 125-year-old farmhouse, she said. One wall is lined solidly with our collection of old boys' books, Henty, Ballantyne, Altscheller, Main Reed. I use a standard typewriter and customarily sit down to do sit down to it first thing in the morning before noon and after dinner are the best times to work though if the job demands demands at any time is good today the house is inhabited by emily webster uh skip down a bit i i asked her what she was working on and she said a sequel to star wars so this is emily uh webster who was a uh reporter who interviewed uh, bracket before she moved into Brackett's house. Um, uh, Love said, I didn't care much for Star Wars at the time. Love did not know how impressive Brackett's credentials were as a screenwriter of screenplays and fiction when she went to Kinsman for the interview, she said. She realized the momentousness of the interview, however, when she noticed a mug with an inscribed message addressed to Lee from Duke. Love was more, was even more surprised to learn that the Duke film legend was John Wayne and had delivered the gift during a visit to the kinsman's house. After her interview, Love began a correspondence with Brackett that lasted until Brackett's death. After my story came out in The Vindicator, she said, uh, she, uh, she sent me one of her books with a nice note, recalled Love. Then I started to collect her work. She wrote The Long Tomorrow, which critics say is her best. It's about the kinsman house. And she wrote it in this house. It's about a post-nuclear America which has no big cities anymore. Things had gone back to the, like an Amish type of living. It opens with a young boy who went to the Canfield Fair and knew he was uh, in for a licking for it. Uh, skipping ahead. Brackett dedicated herself to writing a, her writing career at age 13 and was first published in her 20s. Her first big break came in the movie industry, or so it goes, after director Howard Hawks read her 1944 crime novel, No Good for a Corpse, and commissioned uh, who he first believed Mr. Brackett to write the screenplay for The Big Sleep with William Faulkner. Uh, she went on to write several other screenplays for iconic films, but the majority of her work concentrated on sci-fi stories and novellas, or novels. Hamilton, too, distinguished himself in sci-fi writing, publishing hundreds of short stories and novels that earned him a place in the hearts of lovers of that genre. The couple also was known to encourage young writers, most notably uh, counting author and science fiction writer Ray Bradbury as their protege. And there is uh, some Ray Bradbury, uh, Lee Brackett joint stories. 
Um, There's one, actually. Lorelei of the Red Mist. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. Uh, locally, uh, they were a little-known couple that nobody paid attention to, but they were known internationally, Love said. They only stayed here in the summer. Lee would come to town and buy a convertible and drive it all summer. The, mo- the memory of the couple's high-end cars is etched in the mind of Don Sutton, a local man who paid much attention to Brackett and Hamilton when he lived down the road from them as a child. Today, Sutton owns Market Square, an old-fashioned general store in the center of town that proudly features a display dedicated to the writers. His first memory of Ed and Lee, as he fondly calls them, was when he was a seven-year-old. He saw their brand-new 1963 Corvette Stingray parked outside the family's pharmacy. My mother told me Superman bought that Corvette, (laughs) he said. (laughs) It was the first time he put together that Hamilton was the writer behind some of his favorite comic book heroes. Sutton seems to have revered the pair as a child. He would drop by their house or to chat or request autographs. The first time I asked to get some books autographed, they politely explained they were tied to their typewriters, he said, but they would always call back. Skipping ahead. Although they spent only part of the year in in town, kinsmen seemed to have a special place in their hearts, Sutton said. When they came back in the spring, they'd always say, it's good to be home. A few aspects of their lifestyle set them apart from others, he said, such as the days they'd spend holed up at home writing under deadline. Oh, you wouldn't want to see that, Brackett once told Sutton, throwing up her hands when he was, when he asked what would happen if she and Hamilton both had a deadline to meet, and the fancy sports car they drove. Uh, but he recalls them as strikingly ordinary in other ways. After Brackett sold the rights to Hatari, a 1962 action-adventure movie starring John Wayne, the couple decided to embark on a 90-day round-the-world cruise, Sutton said. But first, they had to stop back home. They had to come back to Kinsman to dig up the turnips, he said. Growing up with the high-profile Hollywood writers in his midst seems to have left an impression on Sutton. A display in his shop is crammed with a collection of Brackett's books, Star Wars posters, Yoda gift bags, Batman memorabilia, and other relics of the writers' personal and professional lives. Over the years, Kinsman has drawn visitors interested to see where the famous couple lived. One day, a visitor stopped into his shop to ask about the house at Orangeville, uh, Kinsman Road, where Bracken and Hamilton made their home. That was when it dawned on me what a charmed childhood I had had to know these people, he said. Brackett left an impression on love as well. The two kept in touch until Brackett died in March 17th, 1978. When I met her, she was working on the final draft, uh, the first draft of Fir- The Empire Strikes Back. But she got sick, Love said. The cancer hit her. Brackett finished this draft a uh, month before she died. George Lucas and blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah, so I think the rest of this is uh, about the Star Wars, <laughs> which she did in writing the script. By the way, that script is out there on the internet, her original um, Empire Strikes Back script, and it is so Planet Stories. Well, you got to read it. It's so very Planet Stories. I really like it. So isn't that cool? Yeah, it is. I mean, um, it's also kind of obvious that apparently this, this place in Ohio was part of the inspiration for the small towns in this uh in mm-hmm. this book. Yeah. Yep. And they're seeing it not as, uh, well, at least uh, Lee Brackett wasn't seeing it as uh, a child, but through a child's mm-hmm. eyes. Um, and and uh, for them, it was delightful, right? Seems like. Yeah, for them, it's it's fun. It's a nice place to spend the summer. And of course, uh, also, they would have stuck up 
even today, someone with a with a luxury sports car in a small town would stick out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. notice it's a Corvette, which is a two seater. <laughs> They're not planning on, you know, having kids that summer. And <laughs> it's they it, uh, probably were to. She was uh, wait a minute. She was born in 1950. Well, if they started moving there in the fifth, but uh, by 1963 she would have been at the edge of of fertility. Yeah, she could she could still have had kids, but um, but um. It would have been diff- been difficult. In her, she would have been in her been in her mid forties. She would have been in her forties, so yeah. it would have been difficult. Late forties, actually. So no, she wouldn't have had kids at that point. Well, wh- they probably were nice to this. Sometimes this these things sort happen. of like okay, we didn't have kids of our own, but this neighbor neighbor boy is is kind of is cute, and yeah, let's enjoy the the kids. Let's enjoy kids while we. Let's enjoy those kids. And they're enjoying people. their own lives too. That, that yeah, they're having fun. Obviously, I mean, yeah, <laughs> world yeah, around the world trip, really Corvette, cool Stingray Corvette, and and what are they riding? Adventure, uh, action, yeah. superheroes. Uh, uh, Will should get into uh, Edmund Hamilton. I think because he's a Superman guy. I didn't know he I was that involved. Some of his, I read some of his Superman comics. Are they the crazy? Uh, uh, the crazy super family <laughs> comics ones, or are they more straight laced? They're um, because the one Superman that sticks got out. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, the one that sticks out is was an issue called Under the Red Sun. It's a famous story where Superman is transported into the future where the sun is. T- you cut out there, and so he has to go on this sort of post up. Oh, um, your the, internet. The one that sticks perfect. out is this famous. Can, can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes, we can. Okay. Uh, the one that sticks out is this um, famous one called Under the Red Sun, where Superman is transported to the future where the sun has turned red, and so he doesn't have his powers anymore. Oh. Mm-hmm. And he has to go on this like kind of zany post-apocalyptic journey to the Fortress of Solitude. Mm. Uh And uh, he encounters all these like robots of the people that he knew uh, from... The twentieth century. Huh. Um, that, yeah, that's the zany Superman that I know. Yeah. But, oh, I like uh, the cover. He's got a beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, and Metropolis he's, he's is unshaven. destroyed. Yep. Awesome. There's not not another human being left on Earth. I'm trapped here one million years in the future, and I can never escape. <laughs> <laughs> Action Comics number 300. Yeah, I have that in a box somewhere. Awesome. Oh, yes. I just found the cover with Superman with a, ba- with a beard yeah. in some kind of post-apocalyptic landscape with a shark monster or whatever it is. Yeah, it's interesting the- because you also get a lot of red sun with an O mm-hmm. of Krypton. Krypton, which was a newer Superman comic. Even though it's kind of, of uh, even though it really, uh, yes, doesn't make all that much sense to have it. Yes, here's another one. It was apparently a. Oh, this is an interesting fact. Listen to this, Will. My hair and nails, they've grown. I'd forgotten that under a red sun, my hair and nails would grow. Star. Under Earth's yellow sun, Superman's hair and nails don't grow. Hence, he never yeah. has to cut them. What? Oh, that's interesting. I've read a different version where Superman just had to use his eye lasers to shave his own beard <laughs> with a mirror. <laughs> there, there's some inconsistent continuity sometimes. Um, yeah. 
Um, but uh, I've also read a, a couple Edmund Hamilton Edmund Hamilton novels. Um, uh, uh, he's got like a, a Prisoner of Zenda mm. rewrite called The Star King. The Star Kings, yes. Oh, cool. We're gonna do The Star King uh, by Jack Vance soon. I, I think it's unrelated, right? No, I just think it's. A, but yeah, I'm. I mean, Hamilton. I always have yeah. a. I have a soft spot for Hamilton, and that's because his because um, his Captain Future. Was uh, whom we uh, Paul Pierre, whom we created, and the Captain Future stories aren't really all that great if you've read no, a lot of meta no. science fiction from the 1940s. But um, they were made into a anime TV series, anime series in the late 70s, and this series uh, was shown on German TV in the early 80s, and it was one of my first science science fi- exposures to science fiction, along with Star Trek reruns and uh, and. Um, and space, so one nine one hundred ninety uh, what's it called? Yeah, it was a British one at any rate. Uh, we always called it Moonbase Alpha anyway. <laughs> uh-huh. Space anyway, So, and this is why it's uh, this is why I've always had. I didn't know at the time that there were books or it was just a cool TV series, this Captain Future thing. But this is why he's uh, why I always have a soft spot for his work because he was sort of responsible for getting me into science fiction. Mm. <laughs> uh, I haven't read that much by him. I've read The Daughter of Thor. Uh, Edmund Hamilton, uh, cover story in Fantastic Adventures. And that, that's, um, one of those stories where they do a polar expedition and then they find, uh, uh, un, uh, semi-frozen land up there with a queen who, <laughs> you know, has a pet tiger or whatever. Um, and it's these, you know, it's, they're half Vikings or whatever. Terrific, um, very fant- fantastic adventure stuff. And he, he wrote a lot of stuff for Weird Tales, too, which I, I don't think I've read much of his stuff. He wrote, there. A, he was, uh, he was actually one, I mean, along with, uh, Doc Smith, he was one of the founders of the space opera genre. And Smith, I find, sorry, I find him unreadable. I can't, I've tried uh, repeatedly to read Doc Smith and it's just, um, it's just, uh, it's really, it's, not it's, much. It's not. It's, it's not, not good anymore. It's not amazing. We've seen no. it. We've seen it was great at the time because he was the first to do it. But we've seen it done better so many times. Hamilton, I think, is still. I haven't really read his twenty stuff, but Crashing Suns and Interstellar Patrol and so on. Or Galactic? No, it's Galactic. Interstellar no, Galactic Patrol is Smith. Anyway, those were some of the earliest space operas. He was mm-hmm. one of the fathers of the genre, even though everybody always credits Smith and not Hamilton and his stories in Weird Tales. Also, I have, I have read and reviewed a few stories by him, not as many as I have read more by Brackett, because she was, Brackett was a better writer, I think. Hamilton had great ideas. He was a good writer, but Brackett is, Brackett is probably, is one of the best writers of the 90, of the golden age, 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 one of the best, uh, technically best writers. Bradbury, Brackett, uh, Clifford D. Simak and, um, C.L. Moore, they were, Technically, the best of the that era, the best science fiction writers of that era. No, Hamilton is is good, and he's a lot more readable than many others of the that era. But um, he's not as good as he was. <laughs> I want to uh, tell Will for his next calendar he makes. Uh, July eighteenth is Edmund Hamilton Lee Bracket Day in uh, Kinsman, Ohio. <laughs> That's cool. They should maybe yeah, have, have a, a have a bracket a bracket Hamilton con or something. I mean uh, Texas. I mean Cross Plains in Texas yet had uh, the Howard days days. And they it, have I think this town is Howard even smaller than Cross Plains. It, it, it's uh, not. It's I'm unincorporated. Not sure. 
how many cross planes is also only has thousand people. I don't think they even have a thousand people. People, I think that the population doubles with Howard days, and Howard days only gets a. But uh, in the yeah, it's, Howard, uh, it, it, it seems to only have one store, so it is very small, right? It yeah, is. it's probably it might be small, but yes, <laughs> <laughs> so it might be like also whatever the next bigger place is. That might Youngstown be like is where Edmund Hamilton, Hamilton is from, and that's pretty close by. So yeah. <laughs> that might be an idea for them to have the bracket Hamilton Hamilton Con or something like that. Because why why should just Howard get? I mean, Howard has one. Lovecraft has its own con. Ah, Lefferty for some reason I'm has up its own. More, con. Reading more Lee Brackett. If this is her most depressing thing, which is, is the most depressing one I've read, um, I'm up for sir, some of her other stuff. And um, I did some preliminary research on her. She doesn't have that many novels that are science fiction science fiction novels. She's got a few. Um, I wouldn't say five. She's maximum. mostly in novels. She's mostly shorter fiction, novella lengths and so on. But the good news is um, at least some of the no- other novels are public domain, and I will work on bringing those into PDF form and put them up because um, I like her stuff. Um, I'm always up for bracket discussion. Even if it's a, if it's one of her mysteries, which I actually have never read any of her mysteries, I should probably remedy this. And if you haven't time. seen that 1973 of movie of the the long goodbye, I have seen that. So but, good. Uh, I've, it's been so it's been such a long time ago that I I should probably rewatch it. It's re-watch so it. good. I've also and seen the, the Big Sleep, of course. It's, it's and got Hattari a really noir ending. Um, Big Sleep is terrific. Everybody everybody knows mm-hmm. that one, but mm-hmm. this um. This 1970s one with um, Elliot Gould, it, it feels like it's jazz. It's like a jazz movie, um, but it has a real cooking plot. And I think Arnold Schwarzenegger's in it for, you know, a scene. Um, and it's very Robert Altman style of movie, but then it has this very hard noir ending. And mm-hmm. Elliot Gould is just like, um, it's the role of his life. It's so good. It, um, when I tried to watch it, it was like, uh, why is it? I had problems with the whole thing because it was the seventies. Because I was expecting some kind of forties. I was expecting basically it's something so like not. that. It's oh, so not. It's so seventies. And it's it was so, so weird. 70s and I was like, okay, but this is not what I want this sort of story to be like. I should really <laughs> probably rewatch it because it was like, I don't really. This should be forties. Why isn't this this forties fifties? This should be. This guy, this gal, this weird guy with the long hair shouldn't even be Elliot Gold. This weird guy shouldn't even be there. It should be Humphrey Bogart or someone who looks at least like Humphrey Bogart. And there's Maybe a lot of cat action in this movie too. It. So this was, this was probably, yes, uh, I was in the wrong mindset for it, I, I guess. And uh, you, have so to, never... you have to really like be, be up for it, but it is, it is, it's just, it's, it's a delight. And it's, it's not short either. It's, it's quite a long and lazy movie opening with a, with Elliot Gould needing to get some cat food for his cat. And then, you know, you sort of follow him around the house and down the street and past the girls who are having a party continuously next door and, and gets the cat food, comes back, feeds the cat. And then I was like, what kind of movie is this? Um, it feels like it was, uh, they thought about this opening actually. Actually, um, now I, I remember it. It's a sort of, um, came out in the early, yes, um, it was a German TV, TV show. It, it's still going. It's a sort of crime anthology. No, it's what it was American real shows, shows where they, you have a rotating cast of different, it's a crime show. You have mm-hmm. different, uh, 
in different inspectors and investigators, sort of rotating like one week you get to get this, these people, another week you get a different, different team. And uh, one of the most famous was a working class cop from Duisburg, which is a steel, uh, which was a steel industry and coal industry working class region. And his first, uh, his very first appearance, it's like there's almost no dialogue for five minutes and we follow him around his, around his home as he wakes up with a hangover, makes himself a hangover cure, cure, and then he gets dressed and he makes himself breakfast and then he goes, goes downstairs and yeah. there's some guy making, there's some guy freaking out and throwing furniture out of the wind, out of the window. And that's the first time we hear him speaking. And the first thing he says is a, is a, he says some roots, some swear words, which were shocking in Germany in 1981. And this is an absolute, it's a brilliant opening. And it sort of just reminded me of the thing with the cat you just mm -hmm. <laughs> mentioned, except that Simansky never had a cat. And I wouldn't be surprised if the, the people, if whoever was the director of that one had seen it because, um, They did have quite good, they still have some really good directors for those, those things who want, obviously want more than, want to do more than, than German crime, than crime dramas for German TV, but that's just what they're getting. This is, uh, from the, uh, Lee Brackett talk, or they're talking about Lee Brackett writing this script. Uh, uh, Brackett, dot, 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 set the deal with the United Artists and they had the commitment for a film with Elliot Gould. So either you, Take Elliot Gould, you don't make the film. Elliot Gould was not exactly my idea, my idea of Philip Marlowe. But anyway, <laughs> there we were. Also, as far as the story was concerned, time had gone by. It was 20-odd years since the novel was written, and The Private Eye had become a cliché. It had become funny. You had to watch out what, what you were doing. If you had Humphrey Bogart at the same age that he was when he did The Big Sleep, he wouldn't do it the same way. Also, we have... We were faced with a technical problem of this enormous book, which was the longest one Chandler ever wrote. It's tremendously, uh, not convoluted, involuted and convoluted. And if you did it that way, he wrote it, you would have had a five hour film. It's not a short movie. Uh, I don't remember what the running time, let's see. Does it say? Yeah. Oh, so it's 112 minutes. So it's a two hour movie, right? But it feels like about two and a half hour movie. Because it just has these like side tangents where you think, oh, th there's no plot here, but it is all plot. It's all getting to the thing and it's, it's delicious. And, uh, you know, the big sleep it, it is a very different movie, but they're both California, you know, they're both, um, and the California, the period too. Uh, I highly recommend it to everybody. The yeah. I should goodbye. probably rewatch it eventually. Yep, you just also, yeah, yeah, put why, yourself in the right headspace for it. Why was actually Elliot Gold? So I'm just checking out his filmography. What because Terrific I know he wasn't too long goodbye. I know he wasn't Mesh and uh, oh yes, Bob Kell, Ted and Alice. That's probably also there was also never seen it, but it was popular. Mesh I've is, seen it. Uh, it's uh, a Robert Altman movie as well, I think. Yeah, and Mesh is is um is um I, I've never really understood what was why it was. Uh, also, I'm not sure which I've probably seen some of the TV show because there was two meshes, meshes. But um, but uh, okay. Ellie Gould is is a terrific character actor who yeah, he's has a, a leading role he's in a, a lot good, of movies. He's a very good actor. He also has a lot. He was he's actually to still working too. Streisand once? <laughs> no idea. He he's had a he's he's amazing. If you watch interviews with him, he's amazing. Because yeah. he he's, he's so he's, he's like the same age as my dad. <laughs> he's he's el very elderly now, but I just saw him in a uh, like a limited role. I think it was on the TV show Bosch, you know, uh, from mm -hmm. Prime, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, oh my god, he's still going. Um, and uh, yeah, you're playing a friend of Bosch's dad's or maybe a partner or whatever. And it's like, oh my god, he's so good. He's just he's he, he's the kind of I'm a big movie fan, and if you if you like start renting movies based on actors, he's the kind of guy you want to follow because he has a movie called The Silent Partner, which um, also I think there's another movie that Lee Brackett wrote a script for called The Silent Partner, different movie, um, and that's a terrific like little you know seventies early eighties thriller with uh, Margot, well, who's the lady who played Superman and his wife girlfriend Clark. Kent's girlfriend in Margot the... Margot Kidder? Margot Kidder, yeah. Um, uh, and it's like, oh, a little fun train adventure, whodunit. So many great movies in his oeuvre that if you just, like, start watching Elliot Gould movies, you'll you fall into a, a wonderful world. But this is his best, I think. Yeah, I should really rewatch that when it um, must see if it's somewhere if if it's streaming somewhere. <laughs> should be, should be. It um, probably uh, is. Um, if it might be on YouTube, a lot of stuff is on there. Um, movies are well. It depends on the movie, but there used to be a lot of classic German movie, German movies, old ones on YouTube, and they're almost all gone now. <laughs> he, he was. But he amazing, was in- you can. F- a Bridge Too Far, which is a terrific a war movie. You, you find him everywhere. He just like um, he, which he was one this... is that? It's one of the Brit Brit movies. The Brit movies are the British movies were on TV all the time when I was a kid, and uh, there were lots of them. Them and they were all called in German the Brit of. So uh, literally every Brit. Yeah, over, this over is the, the Rhine. Rhine had its own movie, and uh, I don't like World War. I never watched watch World War II movies. It's movies. a very seventies World War movie. Listen to the cast. Yeah. James Caan, Michael Caine, Sean Connery, Edward Fox, Elliot Gould, Anthony Hopkins, Gene Hackman, Laurence Olivier, Robert Redford. Amazing cast, right? Wow. It is a terrific really movie, too. Um, and it is... A, what, what's so funny about it is some of the actors were actually in the war and actually did that particular operation, which is Operation Market Garden. So they're playing essentially... Which, which the, is it? I a Remagen. Uh, no, which, no, that's a different. No, which bridge? Which bridge? It's the one in. German names are all the bridge of the bridge of Arnhem, the bridge of of. So uh, there's of multiple bridges in this one. So it is in Arnhem. Because sorry, I don't know the name. It's also the bridge at Nim again. So there, there's Nimechen. multiple bridges. Yeah, there's multiple bridges in this one. That's why it's called a bridge yeah, too far. They tried to take too many bridges. The <laughs> Brücke von Arnhem. Okay, it's a bridge. Of, no, it's Arnhem. I, I pronounce it. I use the Dutch name. It's a bridge of Arnhem. The Brücke von the Brücke von Arnhem. The bridge of. Okay, so that's the bridge. <laughs> because there were bridges about every single. I think every single single Rhine bridge had a movie made in the sixties and seventies. And it's a terrific German movie, black and, and white, were, called The Brücke, which is Die Brücke, a. Yes, yeah, that's a good one. It's a, that's na- a, good, a Nazi that's youth uh, defending the last bridge. You know and. They've got an MG42 and the Americans are coming. And it's a horrible, horrible little wonderful yeah, film. Yeah, it's, it's depressing. Very it's depressing. It was Bernard Vicky. He's a great actor and a really great director. And most, many of those kids later grew up to be very famous actors. Oh, there's I'm a young no Götz Georg yeah. in there. Yeah. There's a young Volker Lechtenbrink. So lots of people who came. And uh, this was a class, this was a common movie to be shown at schools. The high school, it's you a had great to sit movie. down and watch the bridge. You had to watch the Brücke. 
Brooke, so you would learn what's evil if someone oh, gives you a That's gun what it test, teaches you. Oh my things. God, it's oh, so horrible. Everybody, don't do it. Yep. And people are sitting there like, oh, look, hey, it's Shimanski and he's little and there's Falko Lichtenbring and oh, he's so young. Hey, you can't shoot him dead. We still need them. <laughs> uh, this is, this, yeah, so this was, this was literally like, oh, no, you, you, but okay, oh, they shot him dead, but this is wrong. They're still around. They're still making movies today. <laughs> <laughs> How young were you when you saw this movie? <laughs> we were like, uh, we were, t it wasn't, it wasn't the teens, but it was really like, like it was a, I think the teacher expected us to be all very depressed, and we were like, "Oh, look, it's this or this famous mm. person," and they're also young. Hey, you can't shoot them dead. We still need them. <laughs> we still need to sing. One of them is actually a singer. Uh -huh. Singer, but yeah, that's a great. That's a really good. They made a lot of. Um, there are some some very good World War Two movies actually coming out of Germany in the yeah. 19, in the late fifties, which were also highly critical of the of the whole and um, lazy generally. Germany had a high point of movies in the late 50, around 1958 to 60. They made some excellent movies. And then it slowly went, it still, the quality was still very good until 65. And then it went on a long, long slide down, down and had a few bumps up again. But yes, <laughs> never really got as good again as it was back then. But we had some very, very good movies. <laughs> uh, he was in The Lincoln Lawyer. That's where it was. Uh, the new Netflix show. I think it's Netflix. Oh, yes. Maybe it's Prime. Uh, I thought it was Bosch. But the reason I thought it was Bosch is because the Lincoln Lawyer character and Bosch are half-brothers. <laughs> Michael <laughs> Connolly wrote both series. so And the plots are kind of similar. Like, the, the plot points are kind of similar. It's kind of fun. Um, yeah. Uh, he's still alive and still making good movies. Yeah, he's he's a, he's the age of my dad. And my, my dad is still still pretty active. So I'm, I'm glad that Elliot Gold is too. Yeah, I like it. All right, I guess we're done with this. Um, any closing thoughts, Mr. Will? Trish? They're both dead. Lee Brackett's great. Oh, okay. <laughs> Lee, Brackett's Lee Brackett's great. great. You should read everything by her. All right, I'll try. <laughs> I haven't read us. everything by her, but I've certainly been impressed with what I've read so far. And yeah, if you can... Get your hands on a copy of uh, The Long Tomorrow. It's definitely worth it. And, you know, there's uh, her movies are good, too. They're, the uh, Hatari, that's one of the ones she did with uh, John Wayne. Um, and uh, Rio Bravo, I think, is hers as well. Or maybe it's Rio Lobo. Or maybe it's both. I think both of them are, yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think. Um, obviously, he liked uh, what uh, she was giving him to to uh play with you know on screen mm -hmm. and um you know big sleep it I, i've been talking about a lot about the long goodbye the big sleep is um william faulkner i, I like his stuff he's good but uh I, I think the there's something lee brackett contributed there too because um i think uh, the legend goes that faulkner that none of the Faulkner is a great writer, but he's not a dialogue writer. And no. uh, if I was looking for a screenwriter, Faulkner is about the last person I would ask. <laughs> really, I love Faulkner, but yeah, I would never got, say, hey, you, hey, Faulkner, write a screenplay about this California set mystery. If you want him to write a screenplay, give him some kind of family novel set in this house. He would be great at that. Mm -hmm. And also, he's not a screenwriter. And I think the legend goes that none of Faulkner's words words uh, lines ever actually made it on screen some of brackets did but pretty much the entire script was rewritten by um 
by Humphrey Bogart and Howard Hawks, but Bogart made everything thing better. And so this is and Brackett actually admired him. Also, I think you can't you can't go if if you imagine pretty much any adult um, Lee Brackett protagonist who's not. I mean, these are kids, obviously. Len and Isao are too young, but if you imagine any adult Brackett protagonist who's not necessarily Eglon Stark, Stark as Humphrey played by Humphrey Bogart, you will never go wrong because. <laughs> I want to think about Elliot Gould playing Eric John Stark. I agree, but finally need a, his laconic if, delivery if would be film, hilarious. We need a black guy to play him. To play him. One of the first black heroes of science fiction, and he's. And it took until the early 21st century for someone to actually draw him that way or paint him that way for a cover. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I'm just looking at Ellie Gould's uh, IMDb sorted by. Actually, I could films. imagine Gould as a as a hero in some as a hero of some some bracket uh, bracket uh, science fiction stories. <laughs> uh, Silent Partner is rated 7.4. That's uh, the one with Margot Ketter. Comedy crime drama from 1978. Mm-hmm. Terrific! I got. I want to watch that one again. All right. Thank you so one. much. Um, Thank you. It's I'll been just, a great discussion. Yeah, good book. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio. So Shining's next, Binary, Cora's in for that. Paul, not Paul, Paul's in for that. Um, I sent a copy to Misa. She isn't available, but she wants to read it. Um, well, I've got My Will. My copy just arrived last week of Binary. <laughs> uh, who, who, who's read The Star King? I, I've not read it. I'm going based on Paul's recommendation on the Jack Pants. It's a little thinner, or maybe not, than uh, The Long Tomorrow. Let me just see how many. It's 160 pages. So it can't be that big. And then there is an audiobook coming. I will have it. Oh, starts interestingly. With a Q&A. I haven't read that much Jack Vance, so I'm looking forward to this. Paul is a big Vance fan. Yeah. Yeah. This is the one he talks about I just read the, um, what's the, what's the famous one? The, 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 uh, why can't I remember? What? Famous Jack famous Jack Vance book. It's a fix up. The Dying Earth stuff? Yeah, I've only read The Dying Earth. Yeah, I haven't read any of those. I haven't gotten around to this. I, Paul certainly likes them. I just put my name down for the Star King because, um, cool. yeah, because I actually have it here, so <laughs> I don't have to. I don't have, a, and uh, it's a good excuse to actually read it. <laughs> you haven't read it before. Um, it's a. It was a was a thrift shop find, so yeah, I bought same. it, and it went on the. It went in. Oh, uh, went. Why not? Wow, great! So I bought it, and yes. <laughs> Yeah, so this is an excuse to actually get the old Star King paperback down from the shelf. <laughs> Do you have the same one me as I have the doll? It has a big, big, some kind of head or face on it. 
Okay, mine has two, two ast- one astronaut getting attacked by a guy with a sword, and a he's got one of those bubble oh. helmets on. <laughs> no, mine is less cool. My cover's less cool. It's a guy basically <laughs> with a big. It's a big hat. It's just a big hat in, a, in front of a black background. I'm gonna read the back for y'all here. Star King. Mm-hmm. I'm just peeling off the sticker. Uh, Star Kings were a race of aliens who disguised themselves as human. They sought only power. Power over the real men and women they looked upon with both contempt and lust. Keith Gerson had been a peace-abiding man until the terrible moment when f- five of the Star Kings descended upon the planet. Uh, this sounds like a Will book now. And home of his parents and viciously wiped them out as, quote, an object lesson. At that news, vengeance became Gerson's sole objective in his existence, to seek out and destroy those five demon princes. First on his list was Atel Malagate. His name was probably a, a fake. His appearance was unknown, but his style was vicious, and his appetite was for human slavery. <laughs> With only this to go on, Gerson was ready to track him down across a thousand stars. And Paul Anderson says... Jack Vance is one of the finest writers that science fiction field has ever known. I'm just checking out the the, the cast, the German cast of the, the bridge to of the bridge to. That's Wolfgang Preis. He was really good. Yeah, yeah. He's, Hardy Krüger, um, but Hardy Krüger was in all of these these movies. Yeah, he's the Nazi. Movies. He was in all of these World War Two, but he play, always played Nazis because he and he didn't like Nazis. He was actually he was. Um, no, as a teenager, actor, he, was a, he was recruited into the resistance as a teenager while nice. working while doing propaganda movies for the UFA, and he was, uh, and he always had to play Nazis, which is uh, kind of sad. But yeah, so, he had a good uh, career though I, playing I, Nazis. Yeah, he always had to play them. He's still a no. He died. Sorry, he, can't he died. Be still alive. Long ago, he was yeah. he he was he he, he was over ninety, but he died uh, not very long ago, maybe a few months or years ago. Well, months ago, maybe two, one or two years later. Oh, no, you're right. Died. January 2022. Wow. Yeah, only this year. Only this year. He was in Hatari or two of, so he did, yes, he was in Hatari. Interesting. Remember being said, like, wow, he had to, so Lee Brecket wrote dialogue for him. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> set in Africa, I think. I think that's I've in seen Africa it. with a lion. It was on TV a lot when I was a kid. There's a lion called Clarence, and yeah, there's Hardy Krüger and uh, John Wayne, but. Uh, if you and uh, it's people now, people having adventures. He's now. also in the Flight of the Phoenix, which is a pretty good movie. They remade it. That's it's not good so good. One, yes. Um. Uh, by the way, the Flight of the Phoenix is is also tied into um, uh, a bunch of things, including um, there's an episode of Star Trek called the Galileo Seven that is the Flight uh-huh. of the Phoenix as well. Because mm-hmm. the Flight of the Phoenix also came out very shortly while Star Trek was in production. Yeah, actually. and it's I, so I believe it's based on a novel. And said like, okay, let's do that in space. <laughs> but actually, what's it, what's even funnier is that Lucy, um, what's Arnaz? What's her first uh, real Lucy? Uh, Lucille Ball. Lucille Ball. Lucy, Lucy yeah. have been her married name. Yeah, Lucille Ball was in a movie that was pretty much the same thing as um, the Flight of the Phoenix. But it came out, I want to say, just prior to World War II. Um, and then later on, she would, you know, found the studio that would be uh, the Star Trek studio. So it's like, um, which came first? It was it the Flight of the Phoenix inspiring um, uh, Galileo 7? Or is it uh, the movie that Lucy Ar- uh, uh, Lucy Ball, Lucille Ball was in that uh, inspired uh, 
it. And it's like, you could go either way, but really it's, it's kind of, there's not that many stories. Um, and obviously Galileo seven has its own thing, which is also, uh, an episode we've done, which is, um, uh, the cold equations, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So it's like all these different, uh, things come together to make new stories. It's really fun. I like, I really like that. So I think, uh, Rio Lobo comes out of Rio Bravo and says, let's do it again, but you know, different. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, don't, I, I think the Hardy Kruger being at both uh, things though is probably uh, unrelated because she had nothing to do with the script for, uh, for that. No, she didn't do the flight of the Phoenix. She only did Hatari and yeah, Kruger and she- was probably. Yeah. I remember when he died that they said Hatari because it was so ubiquitous on TV, TV in the 70s, 80s that everybody that it came up as one of the things that was listed for what he'd done. And I thought like, oh, wow. So he had Lee Brackett write dialogue for him. That's great. Mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he's actually, um, a, he's in a lot of good movies. Um, it's, uh, you, you sort of recognize him when he's in the movies. And say, oh, that guy, right? Uh-huh. And he's got, um, I, I want to say he's in a movie, a terrific, uh, Africa movie called, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, it's got a train and it's got a Nazi in it. He plays the Nazi. <laughs> um, but it's a mercenary <laughs> movies. Did. It's a mercenary movie set um, in Africa. So wild, what's it called? Oh, Dark oh, of the Sun. Thing. Ah, no, that's not the one I saw. I was thinking of. I'm pretty sure that stars <laughs> Hardy Kruger. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim Brown is the, uh, main character. Um, and it has a chainsaw fight, which is awesome. Um, this has got hard, no, Rod Taylor. Uh, no, it doesn't have, it has Peter Karsten, who is another German, uh, German actor. He plays the Nazi. Um, and it's set in the sixties, I think. It says 1968. And it's based on a 65 novel by Wilbur Smith, who is one of those, uh, Competitors to Alistair McLean so is how I think of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're like uh, pulling a train load of diamonds out of somewhere, um, and uh, you got a bunch of mercenaries in there. They're sort of fighting each other as well as uh, some whole African nation. Really, like raw movie. Uh, but Jim Brown had a great movie career too. <laughs> I was always, I, I'm always teasing Paul about he needs to start a Paul sings the classics podcast <laughs> because he's always uh, like humming and singing um, when we're playing games. <laughs> uh, but uh, I could do a Jesse remembers a movie podcast very easily. Too. <laughs> oh, also interesting is that Hardy Kruger gave his film gave his debut at the as a as a teenager in the in a nazi propaganda film called young Junge adler young eagles mm-hmm. he would have been how old 16 at the time together with um, dietmar schoenherr who later went on to star to to star in uh, the german science fiction series raumpatrouille orion and he, which uh, came out um, within literally i think it's 10 day 10 it, it premiered within 10 days of the original star trek wow Star Trek. So yes, they, they were shot. So they were in the same. Which I haven't seen and seen. It's pro. Also, um, Nazi propaganda movies are, let's say, not 
easy to see in Germany because um, a lot of them are banned except for educational purposes. I actually took a film class at university to see some of those wow, movies. And they only, yeah, they only give you the really famous one. You that's never really see the fucked less up. famous one. You're not allowed to be independent. You have to... You have to like. So you have to have an explanation that tells you that this movie is very, very bad. That oh, it's very Jesus. bad propaganda, and that it's very anti-Semitic. Just in case you hadn't noticed, it, it wasn't anti-Semitic or something like that. That and um, yeah, it's it's kind of fucked up that you that they don't ex- expect that they don't think audiences. You, some of them you can find on the internet net because you can't keep those things off the internet. But um, but um, it's uh, yeah. I had to take a film class in college to see some of the Lenny Riefenstahl propaganda movies and. Uh, and you Zeus, which and which had to complete different uh, different. We were all like, okay, the anti-Semitism is this one is so blatant. We're all going to to root for the Jewish guy now, or a guy now because it's so ridiculously over the top. And then some other some others of that time that type. But they only over only ever you can only ever see like three Nazi propaganda movies movies, the big famous ones, and all of the others um, are just uh, you can't you can't really see you can't see them. They're banned. Band, uh, they're not they're never on TV. Not even with some guy telling you this is a very evil movie. Please remember this, this and uh, and so yes, you can see the it's um, not most of the others can can't really, are difficult to find. And this one I've never seen. So it would simply be interested because of the actors. Uh, well, really well, are you a big about. Jim Brown movie guy? Jim Brown. Yeah, you know he's a football player who became a actor. It's terrific. Oh. I, I don't know Jim Brown. Let oh, me look dude, him up. He's so good. Um, uh, the movie I'm looking at that I haven't seen by him is called Tick, Tick, Tick. Um, it's a black exploitation movie, it says. Oh, it's well, a black okay. guy. No, I'm okay. not. Oh, okay. I have All seen right. him, he's, actually. He's, he's super handsome. He's a terrific actor. He, he, in, in Dark of the Sun, he sort of plays the hero. Um, but uh, this movie, Tick, 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 uh, just lost track of it here, but... Uh, he's in Ice Station Zebra, by the way, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, racial tensions threaten to explode when a black man is elected sheriff of a small town racially divided in Deep South from 1970 uh, with George Kennedy, who uh, showed up in every 70s movie as well. <laughs> that sounds good. I think there was a law that he had to be in every movie. <laughs> George Kennedy <laughs> is in, in practically every movie. It's true. Um Oh, he's also in Rio Conchos. Actually, I've seen the. I've seen. I I had no idea what his name was, or at least his name didn't ring a bell. But I. But when I see the picture, I definitely say, "Oh yes, I know him." He's been in a ton of stuff. He 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 has a small role in Running Man, where he plays one of the um, alternative uh, chaser guys. You know, he he's like the robot. Like the you know, there's a bunch of guys who are going to come out of retirement to kill Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he's one of them. I don't think he gets killed. I think he's like, bullshit, or something like that, and throws off his junk. Maybe he does get killed. Arnold probably kills him. Um, he killed pretty much everybody in that movie. Uh, yeah, so his most famous, he's got a lot of football documentaries, but he was in The Dirty Dozen. He was the black guy in The Dirty Dozen. Uh, one of the non-rapist uh, ones. <laughs> I don't remember what his his crime was, but that's a good movie. Probably being black and probably, maybe yeah. talking back something like that. It yeah. was probably being black and doing something that a white guy would have gotten like two days days in the brick for. And he plays <laughs> the um he plays basically himself in uh, the I'm gonna get you sucker. 
if you guys okay, know. Okay, I've I've seen him in Three the Hard Way. Three the Hard Way. I don't know that one. He's got he co-stars with Fred Williamson and Jim Kelly in that oh, one. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, because Fred Williamson was also a former football player, I think. Jim. Kelly. Yeah. Okay. Three and did Jim Kelly, of course, was a martial artist. Oh, it's a kung fu movie. Or at least somebody. It's interesting that so many um, many American football players, or also other sports people, baseball players, and so on, end up being becoming actors because it's not really that's uh, it's not really a thing in Europe at all. At least not in Germany. We don't have football players uh, becoming actors. Well, you don't have football. Also, <laughs> yeah, but we have soccer. Yeah, but it's soccer, not it's not the same thing at all, right? Whereas foot- no, football the- makes bigger, well, I guess not. That's that's not true. Soccer has its stars, but um, American TV we and football go together. Soccer, but they don't play. But they don't become actors after. It, and I mean, and they become action these, heroes, right? Action heroes. A lot of these people are not bad actors. They're pretty. A lot of the people started out as some kind of sports person, person, baseball or football player, are not. They're pretty decent actors. Jim Brown, for example, or. Um, uh, Mark Harmon, I've almost said Mark Hamill, but Mark Harmon's a guy from <laughs> NCIS and so on. <laughs> mm. So on, and a couple of, uh, and uh, what's, a, what's a guy, a black guy from um, Criminal Mind, Shima, Shima Moore, he was also a sports uh, baseball, I think. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that so many of them turn out to become act. I mean, wrestlers well, There's a lot sense, of attention but, on uh, them on TV, right? So they yeah. get interviews afterwards. You can see their natural charm and... Um, O.J. Simpson is the most famous one, but they, more, yeah, probably no, most infamous as well. Try to forget that he, but he had a pretty good acting career going. Uh, he was okay. He was okay. He was not the greatest he actor. Wasn't, he wasn't all that great, but he had a good. But he had a. But he showed up in a lot of movies. Nowadays, it's like, oh yeah, look, it's him. <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't even know he was a sports when when the when yeah. the, the order happened. I thought, oh, he oh the actor. And then I realized he had a sports career before he was an actor. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, I mean, uh, it's not soccer players. We have their big stars, but soccer players are also kind of infamous for being, uh, let's say, not very eloquent. They're, they're stuttering. They're, they're say, saying nonsense. Do they do interviews like with the players after? They do, inter- okay. they do interviews, but uh, they're interviews with soccer. But uh, I mean, there are whole comedy programs making fun of soccer uh-huh. players saying stupid stuff on, on in TV interviews. Interviews. They, I suspect the American people, sports people, probably get media coaching, and the oh, and the no. soccer players don't really get it. I, I'm They're just thinking. Told, don't say. Uh, like hockey players don't tend to get movie careers either. Like no, no, if you've seen Wayne Gretzky act, it's like you don't want to see that. It's it, he bad. <laughs> he, he did not do a good job. <laughs> but it's just interesting because it's not really singing you. I think the only European sort of sports person to have had a you have a huge film career and more. Of a I film think he probably than started in the black exploitation. And Europe never, Europe didn't forgive him for being for daring to have a. Oh yes, and um, but Spencer, he was a under his. He was an Italian. He shows up in a lot of westerns and so on and comedy B movies. An Italian actor. His name wasn't really Bud Spencer, but I would have to look up what it was. Carlos something or other. And he was a swimmer. He was an Olympic swimmer. But those are the only examples I can think of right now in, of Europeans who were sports people before they, before they became actors. Yeah, I think I, I, like he had a huge black exploitation career. But um, I know him from the sort of more mainstream Hollywood movies, mostly. 
How is that movie, uh, Scott? Oh my God, Will. <laughs> three, three the hard way. Yeah, it's a black exploitation movie, but it's like it's pretty good because it's like a lot of slow mo in the trailer. It looks like, which is cool. Yeah, well, and there's a, a it's uh it's like they put together a super group for the movie of just a, like great black. There's some. I mean, if I recall correctly, the plot is that somebody's trying to, like, poison the water, but it will only harm black people. Yeah, that's what um, it says here. And they have to use, yeah, they have to use, like, kung fu uh, to stop that. Excellent. So, yeah, I mean, it, like, <laughs> if that sounds like a good film to you, then it it's does. a good film. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, it sounds like a lot of fun. Top actually. review says too much <laughs> fun. I, I usually find <laughs> black exploitation movies, uh, they're not easy to see here, but uh, whenever I see one, I usually enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I, I like genre movies, no matter what the genre is, I think. I really like uh, seeing what people do with stuff. Uh, you know, zombie movie or whatever it is. And th- th- you can o- go overboard, and they often do. But uh, black exploitation is, uh, is fun. I'm going to have to go. Thank um, you. But it's been, a, it's been good. Uh, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Yeah. Okay. Was lovely talking to you. Well, there's Nazis in this. Wow. <laughs> the black exploitation. They have like little Nazi. Take uniforms. care, Trish. Bye, Trish. Bye. Bye. Oh, this looks like a great movie. When did you see this, Will? Um, probably like ten years ago wow. or something like that. Yeah, it stuck with you. Yeah, I watched a lot of black exploitation movies. Um, when I was like a senior in college, and like. Then like the couple of years after that, I like that. Yeah, Arthur, our we have a culture. There's a TV channel which is a sort of cultural TV channel called. Um, it's a French German uh, German composer. I think it's in French and German. They did a they did a series of of uh, they did a feature where they they had a series of exploitation movies, black exploitation movies, which you normally can't see here, and they were literally. They were literally un. They only were subtitles. There was no no dubbing because apparently no one had dubbed them. Dubbed them. Arthur sometimes does these really weird things like like okay now we're showing a series of exploitation movies or now we have weird rock weird hippie rock rock movies or biker movies <laughs> or Maybe I don't like Japanese that genre. <laughs> uh, w- women in prison movies. They have these sometimes really weird series of weird genre movies. Yeah. Movies and that's where I saw some exploitation movies, but this was not one of the ones I had. Uh, yeah, there should be a black exploitation channel, like a television channel. That'd be really good. Not that, not that I watch TV anymore, but uh, it, back in the day, that would be a re- much better idea than most of the channels. Another food channel, yeah, I mean, another, <laughs> another gardening channel, another house and home channel. Oh my god. Um, Will, do you have you ever seen that channel called Shutter? Because I hear a lot about it, but I. It's a, it's a screaming service for horror. We had it really briefly. Meg's more into horror movies than I am. You're uh, a horror guy. I uh, I like them sometimes, but like lately, I've been too squeamish to really enjoy them. Mm. Um, like I've seen, you know, like I've only seen a few dozen horror movies, probably. Really? Yeah. Like, and that's been in the past couple of years. Hmm. I'm uh, I'm a fan, but I'm also squeamish. Um, you know, I I don't and I don't like jump scares. 
Yeah. I think they're like, way saw, overdone. Yeah, I saw the um uh let me think this movie the I, I think the movie that really did me in was this movie called The Descent. Um, oh, that's a great movie. Yeah. That's the w- women go hiking at uh, 2005 I think it is and then go and caving and then uh there's um cannibal underground yeah, dwellers. Like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chuds. And like, and I'm like extent, I'm like really yeah. afraid of uh the idea of spelunking in general. Like mm. I would never do that. Mm. Um um like the idea of going deep into the earth mm-hmm. is like I like the idea of doing that in like a novel like we're going to the earth's core, but the mm. idea of like taking a trip into a cave and going deeper and deeper into the cave just like that just makes me want to freak out. Mm. Um so that like just the spelunking was scary enough. Then mm. you add in like the chuds. like inter, yeah, the interpersonal drama and the chuds, and so that that and the it's an all girl movie too. I think yeah, yeah, except for the chuds. I think they're gender neutral. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't think that they have a, a clear gender, and there's like they have a clear hunger. <laughs> yeah, they um, somehow have. Somehow these underground creatures have survived by eating large game. <laughs> um, um, there's case. a sequel too. I, I I think the sequel's not as good, but I can't remember it very well. But I remember that when I saw the descent, it was like this is a very scary movie, and also it was really well done. What 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 about Saw? Do you remember Saw? The I've seen Saw. Saw. You saw Saw? Yeah. Um. Somebody pointed out that the ending of uh, the the premise of Saw is actually the ending of Mad Max, and I'm like, oh, of course. How come I didn't think of that? The ending of Mad Max. There's like the kid who is the last member of the gang. He says, um, "You have a choice. Uh, uh, that fire uh, is going to blow up this car, or you can saw through your own leg with this thing. You won't have time to saw through the high tensile steel." It's like. They just stole the whole premise of Saw and the awesomeness of Saw from that one little scene at the end of Mad Max. It's like, that's the way you do movies. You say, oh, this is good. Let's make a whole movie about this one little thing. I really like that. Mad Max is such... Have you seen Mad Max, the original 79 movie? Yeah, I've seen... Yes. Yeah, I've seen all of them. I love that movie. Um, It's so weird, though, because the versions we have generally, almost exclusively, for decades have been the dubbed versions, which is makes no sense. <laughs> we won't understand the Australians. Therefore, we need to have everybody dubbed. And the whole movie is like, they're all speaking English and they're all dubbed, but the words are not changed. So like, they have these weird Australian expressions like, they call their offspring Sprog, S-P-R-O-G. Like, what kind of, why would you call your kid Sprog? Well, this American's telling me that Sprague is a normal thing. Okay. If it is an Australian calling their kid Sprague, we'd say, Australians, you know how they are. They're weird. <laughs> it's such a weird thing. And they didn't do it for the second or the third movies, right? Because we all got used to Australian accents. I'm surprised they didn't just uh, release it without the dubbing. Because, they never uh... did. They never did. There, There is a DVD version with both audio tracks. Um, but... That is not. Uh, I mean, uh, in Germany, they're all dubbed anyway, way, and uh, you have to on the DVD you can select uh, the English version, mm-hmm, but uh, mm-hmm. in streaming. But uh, if you saw it in the on the TV or in the theater, it was dubbed anyway. <laughs> and they also and they did use the same 
It's the same voice actor for Mel Gibson in all three Mad Max movies. Not sure if they used the same for Tom Hardy as well, Costa. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Probably not, because he's he's not really the same guy. No, it's uh, from... it's kind of weird because uh, that but, movie uh, doesn't make it's any sense. Generally weird with dubbing actors, actors because um, very very different people in very different uh, different TV shows suddenly have the same voice, <laughs> voice and different movies. The very different actors can have the same and if the uh, same voice, which can mm-hmm. be quite uh, disconcerting. For example, um, Midsummer Murders, Inspector Barnaby and and Tom Selleck have the same dubbing voice, <laughs> and He Man has the same dubbing voice as well, so they all sound the same. Which is of course kind of, well, it's and it's a quite notable. It's a very very well known dubbing voice. So it's quite notable that they that uh, that uh, Magnum um, Magnum um, DCI Barnaby and He Man have the same voice. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird that there's a loop trailer happening. I'm I'm on the IMDb and they're just showing me Jim Brown movie trailers. <laughs> um. I don't yeah, know. You've been visit asking for them. A... You've been seeking James Brown. James Brown. Yeah. Anyway, I also have to sign off now. All right. Because it's uh, almost half past uh, seven, and uh, no, it's over half past seven. So yeah, it was lovely and talking you have to you. Some kids to yell at uh, out the window. <laughs> yeah, the kids are quiet now. The okay. kids have to go to school tomorrow, and oh, no. mother probably. And they were also they were quiet. The only uh, there was no, the only thing I heard was a thing was a plane or something once and maybe a dog, but nothing really bad. They're, they're oh, yes, and someone watering the, watering the garden. <laughs> All right. Okay, so Thank well, you. it was lovely talking to you and, and to you. yeah, I'll see you for yeah, a bye day. What's, uh, what's going on, Will? Oh, not a whole lot. I, um, I've, did I tell you I have this new job? I know you were studying to be a mediator, and I was just watching a Better Call Saul episode where they bribe, uh, no, fake bribe a mediator. And I was thinking about you while I was watching that. Yeah, I, I'm still working on that. I haven't been able to get all of my, um, uh, you have to do like X number of hours with, uh, like a mediate with like a mediator to get on the lit, like, you go in like another mediator's mediations and mm-hmm. like help out mm-hmm. um, for, and I haven't been able to get all my hours in for that yet. So the guy I was using, like I got three hours in with him, but I still have 12 hours I need to do. And he hasn't been returning my messages about, Hey, when can I do this again? Mm. And I, but uh, I, um, I've got a job at the local university. Oh, yeah, I've got a job at the local university grading homework assignments. Uh, so Can you like, hear me? Yeah, yeah, you're back. Um, so, like, what, what, what uh, is it? Law stuff or what? Yeah, yeah, business law stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, because I can't, I, I mean, it would be cool if I could do that in English, but I don't have the right credential to do that in English. Oh, so. I see. No, you probably do not want to do that in English. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of I big mean, long essays that are terrible <laughs> yeah you you might be right um but uh so i've been doing that and um there's a union drive at the university right now so i've been like a little bit active in the good you 
you cut out there again. Um, the, Your internet's main... not super stable today. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's not been great lately. Um, it's it's kind of a problem uh, uh, for me. Uh, how like, it's it's okay for what I have to do for work, but when I try to get on like Zoom calls and mm, stuff, it mm-hmm. like. Yeah, like it really lets me down sometimes. My um, mom's getting Elon Musk's Starlink. She already got it, in fact, for her new place because it's off. It's it. They don't even have cell service where she, her new place is, um, and that's like two hundred bucks a month, I think. And uh, it was like seven hundred dollars for the equipment. So, wow. But I was playing uh, PUBG yesterday with. Um, lady in Saskatchewan and she she's in a mobile home or a trailer or whatever and she's using her neighbor's Starlink and it seemed to work pretty good until it didn't <laughs> but um i i think it's kind of cool uh to, you know to have that possibility of just completely going you know away from everywhere all you need is electricity and you can get your internet because um you know, there's reasons to be near the big city, but, uh, you know, if your internet sucks in the big city, that's terrible. And if you could have good internet in the countryside, that'd be good too. Yeah. And I don't know if part of it is my rig, cause I have a, like, I, my, my desktop doesn't have a built in Wi Fi antenna. And so I use, uh, a USB port antenna for, oh, yeah. yeah. So I don't know if like I uh you know I don't know if that is part of why it doesn't work too well. Well, you could you could run um ping, you know. Cable. Well, yeah, you could run a cable too, but I'm just thinking like if you run a ping uh on your internet uh based on various um things, you could see like what the problem is. Sometimes the problem is not you it, and it's your ISP. Sometimes it's your router. Sometimes it's too many Wi-Fi connections. Or uh, uh, the one I all, I worried about a lot was interference from other Wi-Fi channels. But um, my internet's pretty stable right now. I've, I'm lucky because when it isn't, uh, nothing's more frustrating. Because I need my internets. Yeah, it's pretty important to what you have going on. Yeah, I mean, uh, still about half my work is online still, which is not ideal, but um, it is what it is. So I'm. Is that is that COVID related or? I think it is COVID related. Uh, one of my students still wears a mask, which is I think hilarious. But I think a lot of people wear masks because they like being masked. Um, because people driving around in their cars are masked. It's so weird. <laughs> Yeah, that one. That that. Yeah, whenever I see that one, that, that one. Uh, and outside, I, I still wear it to the grocery store, but I take it off as soon as I get outside. Yeah. Um, you know, like people don't like their faces, right? They, especially teenagers, and a lot of women worried about their looks. And this is a way of, I think, it, a lot of people like really don't understand why. Face coverings in the Muslim world are popular. <laughs> they think it's oppression. It's like that's part of it, and it's also um, it's also like um, nice, 
because you're anonymous and uh, you can hide your face if you have a zit and you don't want to wear makeup, you don't want to do all that stuff. There's all sorts of reasons you want to cover your face. And so it, it, I think it, having it where everybody's doing it for a long time has made it popular, just like in Asia, right? Before uh, COVID, people were wearing masks outside as well. So and face shields, which are essentially the same thing, especially when they're those uh, like sunglass style ones, which a lot of Asian ladies wear to keep their face covered, uh, either for um, preventing uh, tan or whatever. So it, it's I still see couples walking around on the streets uh, holding hands and wearing masks together. It's really weird. But yeah, I haven't I haven't put one on for a couple months now. It's awesome. I think it's a couple months. Maybe maybe in my dentist's office, which is ridiculous because I just have to take it off immediately after. Yeah, that's uh, you're gonna be breathing in. Uh, I mean, it might make sense for the dental hygienist. Oh yeah, the one. dentist, but they wore masks before because they're spraying into my mouth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, there's gonna be backsplash. They also wore eye eye coverings, and I have eye coverings for whatever splashes there's happening, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty much, I don't, I, I think I have a mask in my car, but I do, I have two in my glove compartment now that I think about it, but I don't have to pull it out and it's, it's terrific. So one student wears a mask, except when she's drinking or eating <laughs> and then the rest of them are unmasked. Oh no, I guess there's two, there's a, a pair of brothers, one who wears a mask and one who doesn't. That's pretty cute. It, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's fun. Um, but yeah, uh, and you know, uh, some of them are not local. Like one of them is several cities over. So that would explain the remote work there. But there's a lot of them are like even my one private student is, um, is, uh, remote and they don't seem interested in showing up, you know, like, I'd, I'd actually like, I think it's, we're much better in person. In fact, those two brothers I was mentioning, um, I had them remote and they were terrible. Uh, you know, not turning their video on, not having their microphone on, not, you know, interacting. It's like, that's not a way to teach young boys. They're bad at that stuff. They want to play, ro I kept saying they're playing Roblox, <laughs> which is some kid, kids, uh, online browser game, which I don't know anything about other than it's like, uh, it's a game where you make games. Hmm. Um, but, but it's for really young kids. So I was kind of insulting them. Um, <laughs> mostly they're doing league of legends, I think, but uh, Roblox is an online game platform. Game creation system allows users to program games and play games created by other users. So it's probably really fun. Um, but it's one of those ones where you, uh, you don't pay. So you are, you are the customer, I think you are the product, I should say. Oh yeah. Which a lot of things are consume. Uh, yeah. Professor Jake Jeffer at Cornell accused Roblox of encouraging consumerism in children. Roblox has been criticized for making it easy for children to spend large sums of money through microtransactions. Which is the main game way of going now, right? 
maybe starting yeah. value pay for, but everything else has. Uh, uh, um, oh, uh, uh, yeah. Did I ask you about this one? Um, it seemed like one I would be way too addicted to. Uh, it's a zombie survival game. Did I ask you about that one on Twitter? On What's DM? it called? Uh, I want to say Zomboid, but I'm going to, I can't remember. Zomboid. Project Zomboid. That's what it is. Um, oh, yeah. It's set in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I must have asked you about it. So I was looking at this game, and once you look at something on YouTube, they send you many suggestions that you look at it more of them. But the cool part about it is it is very open um, in the way, you know, like I like PUBG because you can, it incorporates alternative play styles, right? This one is the same thing. It has a character creation at the beginning where you take positive and negative traits. Negative traits give you positive points, you know, um, and you can increase your skills like whatever but you also have um you get to choose what career you had before the zombie apocalypse um so you, if you start as a police officer you get like a gun and bulletproof vest if you start a burglar you're good at opening windows and stuff like that right um if you start as a farmer you start whatever um and uh the way it seems to work is uh you start and then the zombie apocalypse is happening, but you still have uh, food and water and power uh, in your home until you don't, after which um, you have to go start foraging and, you know, finding ways to farm. And it's it's endless until you die, right? I'm just looking at the Steam trailer right now, and it's like, um, looks pretty good. But then uh, recently they added a cooperative or multiplayer version. And uh, it's not a new game. It came out in 2013, but it seems to be really hot, uh, overwhelmingly positive uh, for recent reviews and uh, very positive for, yeah, like 77,000 reviews. And uh, apparently it's by uh, co-production between like four people in Canada and the UK and yet it's set in Kentucky. Yeah, I I noticed that. I thought that was interesting. Right? It seems like a um a uh sort of innovative different kind of game and I like, you know, I'm not so much on crafting in Minecraft, but the main thing that's preventing me from getting into this is it sounds like it'll be a time sink. <laughs> like just a way to throw hours down the drain. You know, having fun, yes, but um, I don't sit at my computer very long for games. I'm, I stand at the other game. So I, I feel like I, I want somebody to, uh, one of my friends to start playing it and say, Jesse, come play with me. And then I'll have an excuse to only play while you're playing. <laughs> but maybe, maybe games are too addictive and you shouldn't do it. I don't know. Yeah, I've been playing uh, a lot of PlayStation 3 lately with Meg. We've been playing through uh, Final Fantasy X, um, which is like an old game. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, well, that, uh, You're two generations of PlayStation behind as well, I think, right? Uh, we just a bunch of games. So, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, we're two. I think we're two PlayStations behind. That's fine. Yeah, um, we a- we got it for free from uh, some from some friends of ours who were getting rid of their PlayStation. Yeah, I mean, uh, my, I just packed up my mom's Wii, um, and we, she and I, have played uh, Tetris on that, you know, competitive Tetris for decades. Yeah, the Wii has been around for a while, hasn't it? Oh, it's an it's an old. Uh, it had a YouTube app, um, and it had like a browser, and it had a whole bunch of you know interactive stuff, but it still had a CD tray, right? Or, and I don't even think it was DVD tray, um, but it had some online games, and one of the ones you could are yeah they were online and also downloadable games. They had like a Wii store and all that stuff, but now. Uh, you know, all that stuff shut down, but the game's still on there and the game's still good. Um, so, it, and Tetris is not, it's not like it goes out of style, you know. That's a, that's a really cool thing to me about, uh, games. At, after a certain point, they, it doesn't really matter what the graphics look like. It's all about the gameplay. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in the beginning, uh, we were happy with any, you know, text, text chat or <laughs> miss pac-man or whatever uh you know rpg style uh what, what are they called where you type in the name get lamp style games oh yeah yeah those old text games. adventure that's what it's called right um and then we get uh, king's quests and all those uh, so many great games um I, I, the lot, most of the people I play with, uh, you know, I play with Paul every once in a while. Um, but most of the people I play with, that is their whole life. Like some of them, that's their whole life outside of, of work. And some of them, it's their whole life in total. And it's like, that is both good and bad. <laughs> it's like Ready Player One. Uh, I didn't watch it or read it. But it, it didn't appeal. It was a pretty interesting book. Like, um, I think it was a pretty interesting book in that it like it's nostalgia. Uh, well, it's the, the nostalgia stuff is like I, you wouldn't like that, but the I think it's like pretty predictive of um, like the way the world is headed um, yeah. in a way like yeah That's like bad. that. Um, is like logged into like the is like heavily corporatized um and like people are living in like giant stacks of trailers mm-hmm. um that's bad. and like the yeah the there's like you know there's like this there's this hidden stuff in the game that like you like will win a con like you're trying to win this contest and like win a bunch of money by finding this it's hidden like Charlie stuff in the and the game. Chocolate Factory or something. Yeah, but there's these like big corporations that are like have this like armies of workers that are trying to find the stuff in the game for them. Mm. Um, so I feel like it, yeah. Uh, so there's there's all that stuff going on in it. Um, I, I I mean I don't think it was like a particularly good novel. Um, no, it sounded but, terrible. It was but, like, uh, you know, the one that was uh, kind of remind me of was that uh, World War Z. World War oh Z. yeah, that was 
that was an interesting book too. I, I've come to realize, uh, maybe over the last couple of years, that um, Mel Mel Brooks's son is a shit lib. Whereas I don't think Mel Brooks is. <laughs> um, he teaches at the military academy. What's the West Point? And I've heard him interviewed oh, a couple times, and he is total shit lip. Oh, World War Z is a really popular book in the military. I'm sure. I'm sure. I saw the movie, um, and everybody was reading the book and the audiobook and talking about it, and how it's like a Rashomon or whatever of of it. And I was like, okay, this is super popular. So was that uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter movie, you know, book or whatever. Or Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is not what it's going to be good. Yeah, it was like, it was interesting because it was a different take on the zombie apocalypse. Because it like, it was more of a macro take yes. than the micro. Yeah, and you usually get the micro take. Yes. So, um, yeah, I, I, that's what was cool about it. Uh, but there were parts of it that were just like really stupid. Um I think I think a part. This is again something I read more than ten years ago. I think um, uh, he is uh, Max Brooks is of the philosophy that there are the stupids and then there's us, and um, and and that's a real dangerous philosophy. Because yes, there are stupid people, absolutely, but they are not just the uneducated people. Because a lot of educated people are. Dumber than regular people. Uh, more indoctrinated. Yeah, but but also like yeah, they they're good at getting degrees and not good at uh, understanding reality. Um, there was a there's a guy I follow who is really good. You'll like him. Um, I want to say Black Agenda Report is his Twitter name. Oh, I uh, that's uh, I've followed that before. He's a he's a YouTuber. Um, he's, uh, he had a good, um, tweet. I tweet too much. So I, I, oh, here, oh, it's revolutionary blackout network. Socialist MMA is his Twitter handle. Um, he's first tweet is I'll send this to you. Copy link. Um, there we go. Um, he says one of the most unhinged articles I've, I, I ever read us uh, headline us restraint has created an unstable and dangerous world <laughs> 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 decades of ignoring menaces posed by China and, and Russia have led the West to the precipice. Um, and then there's, you know, deterrence, however, yeah. So basically, um, <laughs> need to go to the brinksmanship even more. So his tweet was, uh, following up on it was elite academia just creates creates a bunch of Western chauvinists with brain rot. They are legit arguing that the U.S. haven't been violent and aggressive enough on the world stage. That's like it's no, it's really a question of like, like how could how could the U.S. have been more violent? Like you know what I mean? Like we could have you need to I roll guess, tanks into Russia. <laughs> Literally, speaking of great power. Like our like like a hot war with Russia or China, yeah, like, yeah. That, that's Direct. like pretty much, yeah, yeah, like that. That's that's pretty much it. You need to roll tanks into mainland China. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like 
like let, let's just like like roll the dice and see how this turns out. Like, uh, what could go wrong? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> what could uh, the consequences be to America? I can't imagine anything bad. <laughs> yeah. The, the, this is you know yeah people are people are. Uh, are nuts out there um there's a um, one of my uncles he he and his wife watch a lot of youtube um and they told me about two channels they they watch one is called um uh bald and bankrupt (laughs) it's a guy who travels around europe um visiting uh eastern european countries and like you know speaking with the people there and um you know just eating food and drinking alcohol with with uh, guys hanging out on the street corners, um, and uh, you know going to weird uh, republics, etc. And uh, that one's pretty interesting. And then the other one that they really like is another. Uh, it's um, I think it's I want to say it's English Russia. I can't remember the name of the channel, but basically it's it's a couple who uh, the wife speaks English and they just show their daily lives in Russia. And they like go shopping for a new car or they go to the discount store. And when you do like the conver, she does the conversion, like things are cheaper in Russia, food and everything, right? Like cars are way cheaper in Russia. They don't have as much money per capita, but the things are physically cheaper. It's like, how is this possible? Um, and then one of the things they said, you know, about why they fucked up the uh, Biden's fucked up the sanctions uh, on Russia is like, um, yeah, uh, the people are saying we we needed to remodel because we kept saying that uh, Russia's economy is the size of Italy's. And it's not. It's just that what they measure as the size of Italy's is is in the States. And, uh, you know, they think service economy is really, really important. Um, and you know, banking services and like that, that's generating GDP, but Russia's is much more like industrial production and farming and exports and stuff like that rather than service economy. And so, you know, right now the Russian ruble is doing, isn't like it's, it's highest ever, right? (laughs) Like there was a little dip. And then it went right back up. And so they worried about price and some imports are, are, you know, harder to get and more expensive now. But and like, who's getting really hurt? (laughs) It's like, (laughs) say Putin's price hike is like, what did Putin do? (laughs) Yeah, he invaded Ukraine, but, um, you know, he wasn't the one who was sanctioning himself he isn't sanctioning the united states so crazy things are insane and then you gotta read out like that's exactly right it is uh elite academia creating a brain rot that is causing people i, I think there was also a van jones one from yesterday where he said um he said i've never met a latinx um and uh and like all these terms that the Democrats are ta- telling themselves on Twitter, it's like they're alienating the people who uh, would otherwise be interested in maybe improving their lives. <laughs> like, oh yeah, he gets it, but the people he's talking to are like, you know, they don't get it. So there, there's definitely something going on. We could end up in a uh, uh, long tomorrow situation. Well, maybe you should. Uh, 
not pay attention to the news. The Long Tomorrow. Um, yeah. What a book. Um, it's not what I expected. Um, I'm, no, I guess it, I got what I was told it was about. It's just it's not what I expected. Yeah. There is like... There, like you think of Lee Brackett as a writer with a lot of romance in her work, and there was not any romance in this. Like both kinds was... of romance, both kinds of romance, but more specifically the planet and um, running around adventure romance is what I think of. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, like you know, there was some. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't no romance in the story, but it was also. You cut out there. It, you know, I mean, the whole, the whole, oh, yeah, no, I, 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 like, the whole thrust of the book was anti-romantic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right? Yeah, it was, like, Got the, a couple the romantic of... kids who are interested in going out and exploring reality in the world, and they find it to be, um, shut down at every turn. Whereas, like, you, like, John Eric Stark is always in the midst of doing something romantic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's in like a cold, bleak world, but he's, you know, a romantic figure. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they how go- did you like? Hmm? How did you like Black Amazon of Mars? I know that I should just listen to the podcast when it comes out. Oh, um, I dug it. I dug it. Did you see my drawing? Um, yeah, I think I did. Yeah, I've got it on my desk here. I made uh, Eric John Stark black and happy, and. Uh, the lady with the flaming red hair also very happy as she she and he chop away at the tentacles. Yeah, I'd like to do more of her her um pulp pulp uh adventure stuff and um I'm gonna work on getting those uh, there's at least one novel that uh the original magazine publication is probably public domain. But um getting that into audio will be much harder than getting it onto the website. People don't want to narrate uh, novels for me. <laughs> uh, I wonder why. <laughs> well, they're a lot of work, bud. A lot of yeah. work. That's the major explanation. Yeah. She's so, got a cowboy novel that I'm, I have oh, a copy yeah. of that I'm really... It, it's called uh, Follow the Free Wind. It's about a black cowboy. Cool. Uh uh, that I've I've always wanted to read it, oh, but I um, haven't ever. I think that there was, yeah. I did a lot of research. Um, uh, I think that that they wanted to have Lou Louis Gossett Jr. be the star of the movie version. Um, and it never came to anything. Free wind, um, Lee Bracket. Uh, yeah. It's a it's, it's a book. I think I think it'd also be a good idea to do more westerns, especially ones with um, uh, uh, Alan Anderson covers, and then I can draw some um, horse, a lady on a horse with a mask, shooting at a bank as she rides away with a bag of gold, right? Yeah, that'd be good. Lariat is the cover I'm thinking of. Alan Anderson. I think I have a, I think I have a copy of one of those stories. Yeah. Oh, there's the one. 
Uh, Cowboy Life Romances. Gun Queen of the Spanish Grant. Colts Wild. El Banco Rio Grande. <laughs> yeah, that looks good. Um, yeah, there's some, uh, so there's quite a few Alan Anderson, um, I think that we've, we've probably got more Lee Brackett Alan Anderson available too. I haven't looked, but I do, I, every time I look at Libervox, I'm like really excited about what's, what's actually in production, you know, and they get mad at me every time I, look at this! I get excited about this audiobook that's still in production. And they said, don't do that. <laughs> Even though it's all publicly open, they don't want me to get excited. And But I, I was like, this is really cool. This is like, I think the one that I was really excited about is set to finish end of July. And it's it's about three quarters done. And I can't even remember what it was. Oh, Call of Cthulhu just got done on Libervox. By Phil Chenevere. He's, he's a reliable guy. Yeah. Dude, he produces so much. I should just look at what he's producing. Uh, <laughs> he'll tell me pretty much everything that's in production. Um, let's see. I think what you do is you go to genre subject and then sort to Science fiction or is it fantasy? Well, let's try science. 13 books in progress. And then sort by release date. Oh, so listen to this. The Blue Behemoth by Lee Douglas Brackett. Complete solo. This came out, uh, on the 8th last week or a week before last week. Re- read by Chris Fong. Shannon's Imperial Circus was a jinx space carny. <laughs> Least okay. for a mysterious tour of the inner worlds. It made a one inch, a one night pitch of a Venusian swamp town to find the death doctor from a jungle in a tiny ball of flame. H- how does that even make a sentence? That's so awesome. There, look at this. And there looks like a giant werewolf or something on the cover. I can't download cover art. Nope, it's not a werewolf. It is a giant monster. And a guy shooting at it. Uh, Shannon's Imperial Circus was was a jinxed space carny leased for a mysterious tour of the inner worlds. Okay. It made a one-night pitch on a Venusian swamp town to find that death stalked it from the jungle in a tiny ball of flame. It doesn't sound like it's from English. Read by Chris Fong. Let's see. Section 1 of The Blue Behemoth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings were the few. I shot a glance at the newcomer. He'd saved me from a beating, even if he was a... It's not awful. It's not reliable Phil Chenevere, but it doesn't seem awful. Uh, release date. Sort by release date. Sort by release date. Okay. There's a George O. Smith, a Stephen Marlowe, an Andre Norton Voodoo Planet, version 2. 
H.G. Uh, Wells in Spanish. Industrial Revolution by Paul Anderson. I think that's a short story. His Wisdom, the Defender, a story by Simon Newcomb. Great Explorers of Space. Robert Sheckley, that's read that one. Lone Star Planet. Why didn't we book that? Mr. Will? Well, is, that, is that Andre Norton? No, it's H. Beam Piper and John J. McGuire. Is it about Texas? Yeah, it's a Texas-style planet. Where the beef is giant. <laughs> Have you seen the cover for this one? It's a... It's, um... Uh, also got another, uh, Planet for Texans is the, is the other uh, title for it. Planet for Texans. Take a shot of super bourbon and get ready for, for some really good <laughs> barbecue of super cow. <laughs> yeah. Here's the, um, the Wikipedia entry. And you see it, uh, basically a land speeder being chased by giant bulls on a, the new world couldn't be fenced in, Will. <laughs> See, this is uh, this is what we wanted—a uh, western, um, but also a planet story. Oh, listen to this! Sounds hilarious. After writing an unfortunate article under a pseudonym <laughs> and having it published in a prestigious journal read by diplomats, Stephen Silk is is banished from the Solar League's capital on Luna for a time. He's assigned to the Solar League's new ambassador to the people of Capella 4, New Texas. The position is open because the previous ambassador, Silas Cumshaw, was assassinated. What do you think? Sounds pretty interesting. There's two versions. Uh, One is read by Mark Nelson, and I'm guessing the other is Phil Chenevere. Wow, it's ho- yep. like. Do you have a favorite of the between those two? I think I think I, I I like them both, and they're neither of them are my favorite. But I think I like Phil Chenevere a little more. Um, but it might be just that Phil Chenevere produces more. Mark mm. Nelson used to produce a lot more. Um, but but they're both dry readers. Uh, but I think definitely. I think. Uh, Mark Douglas Nelson is a little drier. Um, Phil, like, they're both... I know that Phil's doing more now, but, like, they're both just, like, reading machines. You know what I mean? They are awesome reading machines, absolutely. And they pronounce things correctly. And so it's a a brain delivery system. They're not amazing, you know, Bronson Pinchot-style actors, which I, I actually don't like Bronson Pinchot performing... Uh, as much as I like having a good book in my head, you know, like when Bronson Pinchot's doing all the voices, I can kind of like think, oh, this is a performance. And I might like, like, uh, his Tim Powers books. Like, I think that I think more about his performance than I think about the book. And then I think about how Tim Powers isn't the greatest writer. Um, but he, spicy take. Well, you know, I, I think it's like, um, he's fine. He, he's doing what he likes to do, but I like, no, I mean, I, old I, I'm not against the spicy take, but it's a spicy take that Tim Powers isn't. Isn't the greatest he, writer? Yeah. Yeah. 
Because people like him. Like people do like him, but I don't think everybody would say he was the best writer. I think some people think he's terrific. But uh, he's not my he's not my favorite Flav. People think he's important. Uh, I think that's true. I think people do think he's important. I don't think he is that important. Um, I think you know, there's a few, very few writers who are. Um, I had speaking of spicy takes. Um, there was one from. Uh, I, I should have done this with uh, Trish and um, uh, <laughs> and Cora, but this see they wouldn't have liked it. I think whereas you like the spicy takes. Um, it was, I sent Evan, uh, one that, uh, that, um, that Paul retweeted, uh, a thread. Um, here it is. <laughs> uh, John Scalzi. Uh, he's quote teeting somebody who says, but nothing creative happens without a passion. It takes a combination of the two plus drive to push it into commercial space. John Scalzi. Uh, quote tweets and says, hate to be the bearer of passionless news here, but a whole shitload of creative things have happened without passion, except possibly a passion for paying bills. Uh, paying bills is pretty cool. It's an excellent motivator. Creativity responds well to eating and having electricity. <laughs> and then next tweet, I'm not slagging off passion here. It's great, but passion does not equal competence and competence does not equal passion and passion is often fickle as fuck and will leave you in the lurch when shit needs to get done. This is where competence will save your ass and job. And I'm like, that's a very John Scalzi thing to say. <laughs> and I'm like, I sent that to Evan hoping to get him to say something. And he said, uh, yeah, he said something. Um, Let's see what he said. What a fuck face. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's just me. Um. <laughs> and I said, uh, and he says, let me guess. He's not a socialist. <laughs> and I said, he is a bill paying fan. <laughs> yeah. He like, he, he is a commercially successful writer. Yeah. Uh, and you know, um, and he is a fan of paying bills. Um, <laughs> But that's why, you know, like, what I like about um, Tim Powers is I think that he's somehow managing to pay bills occasionally, um, but he also is writing his own thing. It's the Tim Powers genre, whereas John Scalzi is a bill-paying fan who is a fan of other things, and he thinks you're a fan of those things, too. And so uh, these things, two things can converge, whereas uh, my counterexample is Lovecraft, right? Won't, won't write commercially, can't write commercially, um, uh, dies in poverty, is an artist. <laughs> or Robert E. Howard is like, I, I gotta try some new magazines because I can't make enough money from Weird Tales. I'll write whatever you got, but it doesn't matter. His, his power dominates no matter what he's writing. So when he's writing a boxing story or a sailing story or a, you know, western story, it, his, his, his art dominates whatever it is. Whereas I think reading John Scalzi is like, not like that. It's very I quippy. think I started one of his novels once, but didn't get like past the first paragraph. It, if you're in the right mood for it, I think that that'd be fine. Um, but uh, like the way he wrote this sentence is the way he writes everything. Hate to be the bearer of 
passionless news here, but a whole shitload. So that uh, shitload, that's a thing that it's a tell, I think, uh, swearing a little bit is a tell of creative things happened without passion, except possibly a passion for paying bills. So see that last little twist. That's the, that's the squeak core. That's the, Hey, Hey, aren't we clevers? <laughs> yeah. Which I, um, is not I think good I'm, writing. I think I'm in it's the middle of the thing. road on squeak core, but yeah. Cause, cause I, uh, I started, I, you have you heard of this book, A Thousand Doors of January or whatever? Mm-mm. It won the Hugo Award like a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was written by this lady in my town. Um, so like, it's like this should be bait for me, like we'll this bait. like Squeakor book set in Kentucky. Um, and I I only made it about half of the way through. Um, uh, because it was. Like, I just couldn't get it. Like, I just couldn't get into, or there was just like, you reach a point where, like, it's just like, uh, really, um, mm-hmm. like this is the book that we're, uh, we're, we're writing. Like, uh, the part that did it for me was the character. Like, she has the ability to like make doors by like writing things, and she like. Um, I already like, hate it. <laughs> I already hate this, like, it. piece of metal and like cuts herself and like right does something in her own blood, and it's like, oh, this is like a cutter fantasy. Um, like, uh, and I just like I couldn't. I, I was just like, this is, um, because there was supposed to be like the the book is like supposed to be deconstructing portal fantasy, um, and I'm like. I'm like for that. Like I'm like I'm you like, like I'm deconstruction. Yeah, I'm like I'm for deconstruction. Um uh but like you have to like it may have been that like the like the deconstruction that I like already happened in the seventies, you know what I mean? Mm, mm. Uh or like the sixties even. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh the because uh, I was reading this um like really I, I just finished this really great Ursula K. Le Guin novella, um The World for Word The Word for World is Forest. Done a and show it's on like, that, bud. That's a great, great book. Yeah, yeah. Cause it's I mean, in some ways it's a deconstructed planet story. Oh, yeah. Um because you know It's you, a Vietnam as well. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean they even have the fire jelly. Yeah. Um It's a terrific um, book. Yeah. Yeah, and that, yeah. So I um I, I read that this weekend, and that was uh. You should listen to the show on that. I don't remember who was on it, but um maybe it was Marissa. Might have been. I could see her liking that book. Oh yeah, it's a. We did um the dispossessed. Uh, were you on for that one? I can't remember. Yeah, I was. I was on the dispossessed. Yeah, um, that's a solid book too. Uh, I you know. I, I was listening to a podcast um, yesterday. Um, they're talking about the Heinlein one that they were comparing. Moon is a Harsh Mistress um, as sort of those are twin books. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but their show won't be as good as the one we do on it eventually. <laughs> 
one day we'll do a show on that book. It's you're just saving it for a special occasion. Uh yeah, the right circumstances probably when Texas secedes or whatever. Um, Texas secedes. Yeah, it's time apparently to... Paul's up up in arms about uh, Texas Republicans putting that in a platform or something. Um, which you know, if anybody's going to succeed. Succeed, not succeed. <laughs> succeed. Um, <laughs> it'll be Texas. I mean, other places would like to, I'm sure, but uh, Texas will probably do it first. It probably wouldn't hurt things either. Uh, you know, probably help things quite a bit. I can't imagine. If Texas were its own country. Yeah, just because, you know, it would shake up the rest of the country and maybe people would prioritize doing things domestically instead of internationally. I say people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so how, what, what do you think? Planet for Texans, a.k.a. Lone Star Planet. It's uh, three hours and 17 minutes. When would you want to do it? When would you be available to do it? Let's see. The next available slot is 724. That's right uh, right before Robinson Crusoe, which I hear is very long. So maybe right after Robinson Crusoe. Nice palate cleanser. Uh, uh, August 7th? Yeah, that, I could probably do that. All right. Um, what do you think? Phil Chenevere or, uh, or uh, Mark Douglas Nelson? That was probably Phil Chenevere. Um, You're a Phil Chenevere guy, too, if I twist your arm? Yeah, if you twist my arm, I, I think I'd have to go with him because he because uh, he did uh, the Green Odyssey. And he done, he's done a bunch of Conan, too. Yeah, I need to I need to l- listen to some of that or read the Conan that I have. He's, like, he's so not Conan-y as a voice, you know, like, powerfully mad and angry or anything like brooding. He's like, I'm, Shil- I'm Phil Chenevere. And I'm a very nice person, and I will show you how to do LibriVox narrations. He's got a <laughs> he's got a YouTube channel where he does that. He shows people how to do LibriVox stuff. And he, he's old. I, I forgot everybody on LibriVox is old. Like there's that a, makes sense. Yeah, like they just have free time and they like reading books. And this is like retirement, and so it's it's cool. It's like um, uh, it's what people should be doing. In their free time when they're retired, reading lots of books and putting them up on the internet. All right, I'm going to put Lone Star Planet, aka Planet for Texans, on for 0807 by it's uh, H Beam and John J. McGuire, who I don't know anything about other than he co-wrote book books with H Beam Piper. John. Jay McGuire, am I spelling his name right? I like the idea that H.P. and Piper had friends. His life is so bleak to me. I think he had friends in the same way that you and I are friends, right? There's somebody on the internet who he he spends time with, but the internet's letters. and uh, He had like a gun nut friend who was rich. But that probably wasn't good for him. Uh, ultimately, shooting himself with a gun? Probably not. But that is the fate of many, my friend. Yeah, Howard too. Oh um, yeah, and he had he had uh, lots of 
correspondence. So, but you can't reach across the the interwebs to stay their hand against the gun they keep in their car. All right. So Jesse will. And we'll see who else wants to add. And we're going to put... Uh, I'll put the link to the uh, LibriVox by Phil Chenevere. Oh, Paul's not available. Evan's on vacation. It might just be you and I. Maybe we can get Mice in for this one. It would be good to ha- be good to catch up with her. Yeah, she's. Uh, we did um, Orphans of the Sky, uh, the Heinlein. Yeah, was, and that, I assume that one was really good. It was good. Um, Evan and Mice and me and uh, I. I there wasn't that much talk. Actually, it was mostly me talking. <laughs> because I think the book is very um, uh, flawed because the first half is excellent and the second half doesn't need to exist. There's very mm-hmm. little in the second half of the book because it's a fix-up of two stories and the second story is a direct sequel to wh- what the first one ended with, which is basically they, you know, they're on the path and then the rest is like mutinies and... Uh, and lots of sword chopping and and then there's a oh, there's a, a little bit of stuff at the end but they didn't eat all that so that that's probably the most disappointing Heinlein in a while if not ever still good just not amazing what about oh you interested in binary that uh Michael Crichton book I'm probably uh I'm probably traveling that weekend uh Okay, you and Evan and Connor. Con- Did I tell you Connor's moving to Germany? Wow, Connor's moving to Germany. Yeah, um, he's going to be a au pair. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, he's moving to uh, a town called Cassel, I think. Basically a castle town. Um, and he's going to learn German. He's got his Polish citizenship, I think. Or something like that, because he's got a... EU citizenship based on his Polish ancestry or something. And so oh, okay. he can work in the EU and he's not selling his apartment. He's renting it out. Um, so he can return to uh, Australia at some point when he finds out that Germany is quite a dystopia. Um, there's a YouTube channel I started watching uh, where it's a German guy walking around his town. And it's like homelessness is on the, on the rise. And it's like a lot of closed businesses. And it's like, oh shit. It's like, uh, capitalism has come for Germany. Kind of scary. Yeah. You always think of like Germany as like being like better off than some other countries. They are in many ways, but apparently it's coming. It's come and it's coming. Yeah, I liked that thing you tweeted or retweeted. Is like this is America without sanctions. Oh I, yeah, that's probably another black agenda reporter. Whatever. I don't remember when did that go out. America. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, that was. Um, yeah, a lot of people don't like stuff. On the on the bright side, my friend, I'm loving visiting. Uh, with the black cat. This magazine's so cool. I told you that, um, story 
uh, the spider and the fly. Um, that's mm-hmm. not from the black cat. That's from another magazine, which is called the thrill book. And, uh, the thrill book is, uh, very much a precursor to weird tales. And the black cat is a precursor to, to, um, the thrill book. And, uh, so, uh, Don Mark Lemon, I knew him from the, from the black cat and this one's from the thrill book. So I started tracking more of his stuff down because I want to read more of his stuff. But um, I love the black cat. The art is really good. It's just it's always just cats, a black cat doing various things. Um, and then in the back of um, in the volume, they show the checks that they're sending out to people. Like this is the story contest winners, and there's there's their names, and it's like Mrs. This and Mr. That, and um, and some of them are like, oh yeah, I've read that story. That's a really good story. Um, other ones are like, I, I haven't read, but I've never read one in there that was terrible. And we've used a lot of them for reading short and deep, just like, you know, I just read a random short story and like, this is really good. And it makes me think like, um, we're doing fiction wrong. Cause a lot of these people, they only had like one story ever published and having these, these, uh, writing contests where they just, uh, Send out the checks. And they seem to have, like, really... Uh, it's some Chicago-based thing, but really um, cool magazine. And I think they're starting to release them as uh, LibriVox books, the whole issues. Oh, that's neat. It is neat. And then you get a sense of, like, here's a taste of a whole bunch of things from 1891 or whatever. And Jack London got his first um, professional sale was in, in uh, The Black Cat. And it's a science fiction story. I've done a show on called, um, oh shit, what's it called? Uh, I don't know, but it's a science fiction story. And then, uh, hmm. Oh, did you see when Biden fell down? Yeah, I saw that. I saw your commentary on it, and I was like, "Jesse, you're turning fifty, buddy." That's my mom's problem. She she has, uh, you know, she closes her eyes, she'll fall over. It's a yeah. it's a serious problem. Um, but it it it's why old people fall all the time, right? Is they lose a sense of where their body parts are, and yeah, and uh, so like. Uh, the the stupid part is if you look at the video, he's got his feet in these, um, you know, riding things for professional bike riders, you know, like people who want to ride more efficiently so that they, their lift, when they push up on the top of their toe, they're using energy as well as pushing down, right? So it's, it's like a tool to make your riding more efficient. You shouldn't be riding a bike like that. It's like, who is who is managing him? Because that is like anything. Like even if it's just a publicity stunt, you actually watching the video. You don't actually see him pedal. He's just sort of coasting down a little hill or whatever. Um, I'm sure he's capable of pedaling. What I'm not sure is he should he, he should, like ever ridden that bicycle before because that you know put a helmet on him because he needs it. That's how well, people that's get... just like bike safety, you know. Yeah, like, well, no, but like literally, this is a guy who falls down a lot, and you're you're not thinking about the fact that his feet are going to be bound up in these things. 
like that is um it's like you got to watch your you got to uh, falls are how a lot of people end up dead yeah and you know they say he's fine well yeah but he's not really fine he wasn't fine before he's had two brain surgeries we we're gonna like have him fall down some more we went kamala in charge this is not good <laughs> yeah kamala who like nobody has seen in like since she got elected <laughs> yeah well nobody wants to see her um this uh, this is uh, this comic was really good um lion and the eagle Oh, I saw you tweeting about it. So good. It's a World War II comic. Yeah, he's uh, he could just write World War II for the rest of his life, as far as I'm concerned. But he, he, like, you see this shelf full of books. Those are the books that he's obviously read to make this thing. And it's like, it's about, uh, I want to say the Chindits, which is what the symbol is on the lion and the eagle. It's on the cover. Um, it's like this terrible, stupid idea to send Amer- uh, British uh troops with indian backups and american support uh behind enemy lines in burma burma to attack the japanese and it's like it's a total fuck 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 fest right it's just like starvation you know dysentery uh, malaria everything dark garth ennis would like love uh yeah you know it's funny is he does like uh shitting and barfing stuff but this is um this is, he, you know, it's funny because he is mostly, I think of him as sort of a comedic writer, but when he does his World War II stuff, it's, it's, there's no comedy there. And, uh, it's not social commentary exactly, but, um, there are like blocks of pages where two guys standing around talking about like what, whether this was a good idea or not and w- whether, uh, uh, colonialism is a good idea or not. And he doesn't say, you know, he's not preaching to the choir or anything like that because, you know, uh, everything's in the past. But um, his judgments are usually pretty good, like um, where he has the the end of the conversation land where, you know, uh, it's like, oh, yeah, well, you got the right conclusion from that. Not that, like, we should go start World War Three. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so they're more, much more like historical, uh, fiction than anything else. But, um, also he gets good artists for those generally. So that, um, it's really good. Uh, I, I can't see like Garth Ennis is mostly what keeps me in comics really. Cause you know, the Howard, uh, Robert E. Howard Conan stuff is terrible generally. I get it because I'm hoping it's not going to be terrible, but, and that, what's that one, um, house by the lake. Are you still reading that? No, I haven't been to the store in a long time. I, um, Jewett and I text each other about like what we're reading, mm-hmm. but I haven't read comics in a while. Like I've been reading some Disney comics, but not like, um, I slowed down with that too. Cause I just, um, I'm kind of back on books again, books are which good. is good. I um I read a uh a Donald Duck or I guess it's Uncle Scrooge uh recently that was pretty good but mostly I Oh from free from free comic book day? No, no, it was just uh there was that there was one of those two but that was a while ago. Um it was just like um Phantom of the Opera in uh Duckburg or whatever. Um 
but there was a the ones that I re- I really like Charlton comics because I haven't I didn't mostly see those I think when I was a kid and so there's a lot of cool um uh you know horror Charlton's um the artists are sort of mixed good and bad but they're really raw in a certain sense and then um I picked up because they were at Buck each I picked up a bunch of like girl comics like uh just married and uh my diary and <laughs> like that yeah 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 and i'm reading those and i'm really quite enjoying them um not just because there's uh uh fold out pictures of uh, david cassidy <laughs> posters or whatever but because um the storytelling is really weird and interesting um you know like I've just married this guy and now his best friend is hitting on me. What do I do? And then it's resolved after like three pages. Um, or, you know, they move to a small town and the girl doesn't like it. And that the problems are so small and they're generally solved really easily. Um, but the styles and the fashions and the, like, it's just such a weird headspace to be in. It's like reading from, you know, aliens, alien comics. Um, and the, the art's pretty good. I, I kind of like it. I, I've always kind of liked girl comics because they have like a lot of scenes where people are sitting in cafes with coffee. <laughs> I'm like, I one time made a, uh, whole, um, have you seen this? My coffee, um, uh, soap opera? No, I haven't seen this. It's, uh, I do, I have too much time on my hands, clearly. Coffee Love, I think it's called. <laughs> and uh, so I photoshopped all the, um, uh, here it is. And then somebody retweeted it and I said, hey, I did this. <laughs> and they're like, oh, it's cool. Um, uh, look at this. <clears throat> Called Coffee Love. It is a 24 tweet Mobius comic strip that you can ride as long as you like uh, while I go make some actual coffee. <laughs> so, what I would do is I would go in and then Photoshop out the words and replace whatever name is with coffee. <laughs> so, how can coffee love? Hashtag. Uh, how can I be in love with coffee? <laughs> oh, I guess the thread doesn't work. I don't know. Uh oh. Yeah, I don't know why the thread doesn't work. Why does that thread like... work? How can coffee love? Okay. Maybe it's from so long ago that it doesn't work. I'm I'm clicking the hashtag yeah. so that does the hashtag work? The hashtag works. Okay. How can I'm finding at least four of these images anyway. Yeah, they should be in order though. How can coffee? Coffee love. When once again the two lovers of coffee love coffee. <laughs> and uh, they're from a couple different stories, um, but it's mostly one. And they just kept going back to you know drinking coffee, making coffee, because they have to have something to do with their hands, I think. So they just always have you know instead of punching people, they're drinking coffee going to somebody's house and there's like a pot of coffee there and they're angsty by themselves so they have some coffee uh, it's not coming up that's weird at sff audio 
coffee love. Any luck? Uh, yeah, here we go. Oh, oh you know what? I probably didn't do it as a, um, I probably didn't do it as a thread. Lovers of coffee love coffee. Okay. Yeah, definitely need to organize this. For the people. For the people. I'm going to have to organize my Star Trek tweets into a coherent thing as well. Yeah, you've made a lot of those over the years. Yeah, especially last year. How come the... Yeah, it's only only like four of them come up with this hashtag. And I love you. I love your coffee. I really do. <laughs> He's kissing your head. <laughs> yeah, that's... I guess I could search by the numbers in square brackets telling how many this t- t- tweet thread is. That would figure out a way to get it back together. Or it's probably on my computer somewhere. Eric was telling me that this is like a whole industry or movement a long time ago where people repurpose old comics. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I guess so. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but mine's not public domain. I just did it for fun. Uh, that is the original thing is not public domain. Two of 24. I have a lot of these apparently. Oh, here's here's number two. Yeah, so I didn't hashtag them. How can cough? Oh, maybe I did and it just didn't work. <laughs> he comes in. He's looking at her. Is it important? No. He's looking at her coffee. <laughs> uh, oh, and of course it doesn't come up when I search. Uh, this bra- external browser thing doesn't work properly. There it is. She pours him some coffee. It, it would probably be a lot better to read this in real time rather than make me make me making you read it as I slowly gather up Recover its parts. It. Yeah. And I think it like just recycles some frames over and over again as well. Okay, that's four of twenty-four. It looks this. Oh, she pours the coffee. I see. And then five of twenty-four. I see if that comes up. Uh, oh, they sit down to enjoy the coffee. Uh, I didn't expect to see you again, Greg. Well, I didn't expect to see you e- again either. <laughs> I guess I, th- I was relying on the hashtag. And now, of course, that was a mistake. My hashtag's been suppressed, Will. Yeah, that's kind of weird. It is weird. Well, that's a good shot right there. Yep. Makes you want to drink some coffee, though, right? No, it actually does. Oh. Is the is the actual fact? Yeah. Um, oh, now he's recovering from the coffee. Copy link. I think I love coffee. I see. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Oh, I don't think I told you this. I I was telling Evan. Uh, one time we were playing um, PUBG a couple months ago, maybe. And Paul said, um, uh, this is a, you don't have to answer this, Jesse, but, um, uh, you know, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to answer if you don't want to. Oh, what's this? And he says, um, do you think you're, you're ace? And I'm like, what? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm pretty good. Yeah, I'm amazing. <laughs> And he this said, is, uh, "This is a this is a great question. I really like this question. So, so then Paul had to explain to you what ace was. I, I, I once I figured oh like asexual. I was like okay, I'm like um I yeah. So I uh, what what was funny is I think he thinks that that would help me <laughs> because then I would be on the 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 uh, spectrum." <laughs> I'd be in the group, LGBTQ. There's an A in there, right, for asexual, um, or whatever. It wasn't QIA. Yeah, I think it's like yeah. If you do the longest version yeah. of it. Um. So, uh, and I was explaining to him like I follow the philosophy that we have no essential character. It's fr- like from that Herman Melville book, Bobby Dick, where strike, strike against the paperboard mask, uh, pasteboard mask. Uh, peel away the onion and all you got left is a pile of onion peels, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think identity is not that interesting. <laughs> and he says, okay. <laughs> but, um, uh, I'd like, you know, the reason most people don't have, um, uh, romantic relationships and wives and children, Paul, is because they, can't afford to under the current system we have, right? And so leaning into that stuff is like, it's a way of justifying it. But if you, if you, uh, like just look around at the number of people who are having fur baby children, it's incredible, right? And, uh, you know, if you're not literally having children, um, uh, having a relationship that's, uh, very expensive um to not have like so i i went into this whole thing and he said oh okay (laughs) that's the important part while you're playing this game i just thought it was it was pretty funny but i i think that he thinks that'd be useful like it'd be um uh allow me to be among the group and i'm like i yeah but i'm not among groups either did i send you number eight think i didn't it doesn't really yeah matter. yeah i just favored it okay because um uh a lot of them are just a moment later they're pouring more coffee you know but um so so i yeah. think my romantic relationship is with coffee and your romantic relationship is with coffee i mean i think that that might be uh it's a continuous and so, ongoing so you, love affair yeah so you so you rejected paul's question essentially yes i did which you know it's maybe not the nice thing to do, but it's the honest thing to do. And then she's reflecting on her coffee. She, they've got a percolator. Yeah, I love the percolator in the scene. It's a, it's a. These are Marvel, I think, or maybe DC. Um, and I've enhanced them uh, somewhat. There we go. 
There's, uh, what was this one? You've hinted obliquely that you had a relationship in the past that didn't go well. Oh, yes, I have. Nah, I, I, I'm definitely a heterosexual man. Unfortunately, I'm a heterosexual man who is um, not in a romantic relationship because, first of all, he doesn't believe in them. Second of all, um, they're very expensive and time-consuming, and kids are expensive and time-consuming. Yeah, I definitely will agree that relationships are time-consuming. They are, and the thing is, there's a lot of danger in them. Um, hence, you know, <laughs> my cynicism. But um, A bonus? A bonus will, I'm told. Oh, excellent. He's been away. Um, well, there's this one. This doesn't look like he's live yet, so we'll see what happens. I'm going to ping him on Twitter. We are showing. All right. Uh, how you been doing? Um, okay. Uh, let's see. I should warn you that at some point... The farm crate of uh, vegetables, oh, farm yes. share, will be arriving, and I'll have to go and pick them up, and I mean from the porch, and right. uh, put them in the fridge. Good, but, uh, good. What what you going to be getting? We don't know. There's a long list of stuff that uh, that grows, um, but we never know. You know, will we get lettuce this week or not? Mm-hmm. Last week we got fresh tomatoes, and that was yummy. I think I, I, think um, I heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh yeah, I posted on Twitter. That's right. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, we get cauliflower pretty often. We get cabbage pretty often. Um, uh, we got snap peas, sugar snap peas once. Nice. Um, and uh, uh, at the beginning, we were getting a lot of herbs, um, uh, mint, and. Um, uh, sage and uh, various other things, but lately it's mainly been uh, the uh, things like cauliflower and cabbage. Um, so it's and oh, and um, we've gotten carrots twice also. So it's always a surprise. It's fun to see the stuff and figure out what to do with it. <laughs> How many farms are delivering? It's like, just one fa- farm oh, that okay. we are subscribed to. There's a bunch of farm shares around here, um, but this is the only one that actually delivers to your house. The others, you all have to go to some collection point. Right. But but with this one, they just magically appear on a Sunday morning or noon or whatever. <laughs> nice. Um, no meats, I take it. They're all uh, no meats at all. Veggies uh, and just fruits. No fruit. Uh, we won't be getting any blueberries from them, sadly. Um, <laughs> I guess tomatoes, if you count tomato as a fruit. I but, do. Uh, <laughs> I do. Uh, but that's the closest we get to fruit. Yep. Wow. Well, yeah, totally a fruit. Um, did you know strawberries are not fruit? <laughs> I guess they grow on the ground instead of a tree or a bush. No, nope, so. that's not what it is. They're a hmm. parafruit. Um, because their seeds are on the outside, 
what makes something a fruit ah. is that it's it's has seeds on the inside. So uh, tomatoes are fruit, bananas <laughs> are fruit, and um, uh, pumpkins are fruit. Huh. We, we don't think of pumpkins as fruit, but that's what they are. Um, I do actually, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you do? Okay, well, most people don't think of yeah, pumpkins as fruit. It's, it's probably uh, cultural, because in Germany they're considered fruit, <laughs> and have always been. <laughs> huh. Well, you do make pumpkin pie, and uh, yeah. pies are usually fruity, so I guess it makes sense in that way, too. Unless they're tortillers, <laughs> in which case they're meaty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, I got Cora, so I'm going to look in my t- Twitter. Yes. Sorry, I'm a few minutes uh, minutes late, but um, I just had it's afternoon here. It's um, it's five in the afternoon, and I just had coffee and uh, and cake with my dad. Excellent. Nice. Uh, yes. Coffee is also fruit. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it is. Yeah, it grows on bushes. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a it, it's a berry too, right? So it's got mm-hmm. it's got it's a berry. Yeah. <laughs> of course, we don't care about the fruit part. We only care about the seed part but um yeah all right so what um, the fruit tastes like uh not great is <laughs> why we don't eat it right um but uh yeah so what we normally think of uh you know like if you're talking to kids this is oh, i need talk to, to get mostly. a drink I'll, I'll go away yep. and get some water and stuff is uh oh, yeah, it's that's, um... sweet then it's a fruit <laughs> But yams. Tomatoes are fruit. Yams. And no one ever thinks of them as free. Fruit. Yeah, they're yams are sweet. But theoretically, they're but in, but in theory, they're fruits. And uh, <laughs> also, beets are, are sweet, but they're not fruit. <laughs> no, they're roots. Yeah. It's beetroot. It is, it's even the name. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like beets. Sometimes. Um, we have them. We had them in the. We have them in the garden, and one year we really had too ma- too many of them. So uh, I'm a bit. But for some some uh, for some dishes, you really need that. Need them. I I always um, buy if I don't have beets of my own. I always buy them around Christmas. The traditional herring salad because that needs beets. Sorry, I have something. A microphone. I just see a. Yeah, it's gone. It was a fluff of uh, dust on my microphone. <laughs> it's okay. It was very visible. Oh yes, um, I think it's okay now. But um, I might I will mute if that happens. I might uh, have to close. I have the windows open right now because it's warm, mm-hmm. warm. But uh, if it's too noisy out outside right now, it's quiet. But if there are a lot noisy children or something outside, I might have to close the windows and switch can, on the first air. First, you need to scold them, and then you can come back. We need to hear the scolding. You noisy children! <laughs> <laughs> I am recording a I podcast. <laughs> uh, it depends on which children it it is. I mean, summer. I mean, uh, two. I have two children in the next door, and uh, two behind. Two in the literally in the house whose ga- which, uh, whose garden um, is adjacent to ours. So it's a house behind ours. Ours and the the two children uh, children behind ours. They're nice. The parents are nice. Also, <laughs> also if they are screaming, they're doing it in Russian because they're Russian immigrants. And, but the other kids on the other side, uh, they are sometimes very noisy, and yet they say the parents are also not the best. They don't, we just figure, we just learned that they don't feed their, how old is he, maybe eight or nine, and they, they only feed him in the evening. They don't feed him 
at lunch when he comes from home from school. So, so he's in your yard eating your beets. <laughs> yeah, he's not even. Yeah, the, he he would probably he eats he eats everything everything. The, <laughs> the mother in the neighborhood sometimes feeds feeds the kid, and she says, "This this poor kid, kid. He he eats a lot, but he doesn't get anything to eat because she was quite outraged about that." Hmm. Uh, speaking of scolding, people are not so poor that they can't afford to feed their kid. I mean, that's another problem. But those people are not so poor; they just turn. Oh, I, think I, I hear can't well. be bothered. Uh, yeah, I'm here. Can How you hear you doing? me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, we can hear you. Um, yeah, I'm doing good. I, what kind of microphone are you using? It sounds far away. Let me adjust it. I'm using the Yeti. Okay. It sounds fine to me. It's not terrible. It sounds okay to me, too. Uh, but you need to blow on it. Yep, it seems to be working. All right. Um, and it's set to cardioid? I never remove it from that setting. Uh, much better. You're much closer to it now. Excellent. Let me adjust myself. <laughs> All right. So, th so this works. Yeah, that's good. Good All deal. Sounds great. All right. Um, I'm uh, making a backup recording. Oh yes, thank you. Um, and Will has capability too. Usually. Yeah, I'm doing that as well. Excellent. Cool. Excellent. Um, uh, let's just uh, see if there's any uh, Twitter beefs we can start, and then. Uh, uh, Trish will be ready. <laughs> <laughs> gotta gotta break ourselves in here. What are the what are, are, are there any controversies these days? I feel like Twitter is boring. Uh, mm. I'm sending a lot to Evan, um, but he's easy to uh, to rile up. Uh, <laughs> he he said uh, un, unprompted. Miss Marvel, Miss Marvel, kind of stunk. Islam plays no role in the character token representation. I haven't seen that. Uh, I haven't seen it yet either, because uh, there's simply too much, uh, too much uh, ongoing TV. To I would, I will probably watch it eventually. Yeah. I mean, I have Disney Plus, plus I can watch it, but it's just uh, there's too much of the stuff. <laughs> I've been and, um, too busy like, to okay. watch it yet. Also, I've been trying to do my Hugo reading and watching. And oh stuff. yes. <laughs> I did watch the first four episodes of Night Sky, uh, uh, oh, yeah, uh, which is on Amazon, and I'm pretty intrigued by that. It's um, the one with, what's her name, Sissy Spacek and... Um, oh, J.K. Simmons. The name, uh, exactly. I was going to say the guy who plays J.K. Jameson, but uh, that's him, exactly. <laughs> the guy from the GIF. <laughs> the reaction GIF where J. Jonah Jameson starts laughing. People use that one a lot. Um. Uh, Cora, I, I'll be uh, informing you of something. You know, porn pornography is uh, approved of on Twitter. It is allowed, really? Not not just allowed. Yeah. It's approved of, mm -hmm. which is strange, right? Because normally yeah, because, we think of uh, Facebook guidelines I mean, and community, blah blah blah. Our, our single nipple, and this was literally hardcore pornography. Yeah, hardcore <laughs> pornography is not only encouraged, it, it is approved of on Twitter, which is really strange because you like I don't almost ever ever see it. And then one time I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> um and uh you know like it's it's uh so like I saw you um you tweeted just reported and blocked four porn video tweets. So the blocking makes total sense, but reporting will do nothing. 
unless they yeah, have a massive I mean, policy change. Them, so I have no idea if they will will do something about it. They, but it will, they will not do anything about it. Uh, really vanished. A lot were either hardcore porn or um, or Islamistic beheading videos. Um, I think I, I don't know about Islam. something about the Russian pro- about Russian propaganda because I haven't seen any in a long time, and I haven't also haven't seen a. <laughs> well, you haven't been seen, following uh, me clearly. Video in a long time. <laughs> no, I, I I don't think beheading videos. I think those will be censored somehow. Yeah, but, but no, por- pornography like there's a, like a uh, often the case where some American politician will like like or retweet or accidentally usually it's like some pornography and then it becomes a big scandal which is pretty funny uh, they're using their you know <laughs> a congressional account and it's like hey that guy's married and he's he's uh favoriting um uh you know some por- porno uh yeah but uh, i mean it Twitter was really account. literally it was uh it was the close-ups of penises uh penises oh i know i i've seen them faces and it was like Okay, really, I don't want to see this on Twitter <laughs> while I'm regularly. I think uh, it was it was a certain trending hashtag which uh, brought up some of those uh, videos, which was uh, it was ambiguous. It could have me- it could have meant two it could have meant two things, and um, so brought up a lot of weird weird videos. <laughs> okay, well, well, that's controversy is now solved. Uh, Will, you w- said you were on vacation with your parents. Where did you go? We went to North Carolina, um, down to Carolina Beach. We stopped oh. in. Uh, yeah, I think that I was, near, I was near your neck of the woods, Trish, or your former neck of the woods. Um, My former neck, yes, just twenty minutes away. <laughs> you were. Um, you, you're from Wilmington. Did I make that up? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So we we ate in Wilmington some, and we, uh, you know, kind of went all around there. Um, stopped in Asheville on the way down to kind of break up the trip because it's a long drive from Kentucky. Uh-huh. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, I was just, uh, reading H. Ryder Haggard on the beach and, uh-huh. um, uh, when Kentucky are you, Will? You know, all that stuff. Um, I'm in uh, a small town near Lexington, Kentucky. Ah, um, uh, what's uh, the name? Se- I may know it. <laughs> Oh, uh, Richmond. Richmond, yes, not, I know that. It's not that small. No, it's, it's uh, but I know the name because um, I have family in Lexington, Lexington, oh. and uh, I visited, so I know the area a little bit. So Richmond, uh, Versailles, which is probably not pronounced by Frankfurt, that's uh, I know that region. I also have yeah, actually yeah. been driven from uh, Lexington to North Carolina, which it is quite a way. <laughs> Yeah, well, this is North world, Carolina. Isn't it? I think we went to South Carolina. <laughs> Did you know well that um, uh, there's a Richmond here as well? There's a Richmond like everywhere. Yeah, it's like, pretty, it's pretty common. People's. Everywhere cities. <laughs> yeah, it's actually yeah. where the airport is. So if you if you somehow flew from Richmond, which I don't think you have an airport there, do you? <laughs> um, not we have a very small airport. Okay, so yeah, technically places. you could fly from Richmond to Richmond, come visit me, and then yeah, your parents would say, "Where are you, Will?" And you say, "I'm in Richmond," <laughs> <laughs> and not be lying. <laughs> they, the- they'd be more interested in where my dog is. They'd uh, just be like, "Who's taking care of Lucy?" And I'd be like, "Well, she's fine." What about the cats? That's uh, oh, we lost one of them recently. It's it was very sad. Um, lost us in... by a car. Oh yeah, okay. That's um, why there's so a big litter, he, unfortunately. Yeah, that's how they work. Um, yep. But uh, we had um, 
so so two big pieces of cat news. We we lost one of the cats recently, and it was our favorite cat, so oh, we no. were very stricken. Oh. Uh, Cutting uh, out, bud. It was like yeah. I think. That's um, but name. you know, that's the the way of outdoor cats is they want to run into traffic. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but we also um. So we had eight cats. We managed to get all but one of them fixed. And um, the one that we couldn't capture to get fixed has created more cats for us. Uh-huh. To deal with. <laughs> um, so we have five uh-huh. kittens in the backyard as well as oh. the other cats. Wow. Um, yeah, we, we, it's, it's becoming a production. Um, uh, so we need to figure out how to capture this, this new mother cat that, um, so she doesn't create more kittens. And we need to capture these kittens so that they won't, you know, grow up and make kittens. Uh, but it's a lot, you know, there's a lot of cat antics in the backyard. Mm. You know, you wake up in the morning and you can look out the window and there's five kittens just jumping on each other. And, and the next morning there's 17 spaces. kittens and the next morning there's 317 kittens. Yeah. It's, <laughs> they're uh, not it's, doubled. <laughs> yeah, they're or, pigs uh, is pigs. Martian flat cats. Yeah. <laughs> Alice um, Park, oh, Parker Butler's Pigs is Pigs. Uh, okay. Um, let me, uh, it's been a long time, Will, so I want to uh, see if there's anything on the schedule that I need to tell you about. And I think the I sent, Seawolf. Yes. Um, but I think there was something I sent to you as like, hey, what, what about this? And you were not around. So I, I don't know what that one was. But, was it your birthday podcast for Robinson Crusoe? Uh, is that on my birthday? Or I think you were pitching that as like I'm turning fifty and I want to do Robinson Crusoe. Oh yeah, we've we've scheduled that. I don't think that that was I saying it because I'm turning fifty. Um, I, at least <laughs> that, that's how I remember it. I am but, turning uh, fifty, but um, <laughs> I don't remember. Well, if if guilt works, then that's fine. The good news is it's been scheduled for uh, the thirty first of uh, July. So if you want to be on that, um, we are good to go. The Star King is, I believe, uh, that's the Jack Vance book. Um, that's on the 17th, which is the closest one to my actual birthday. Uh, the Sea Wolf is, uh, the 10th of July. Binary by Michael Crichton is the 3rd of July. And then Shining is next week. Yeah, I was looking at the schedule and I noticed you put my name in all caps with an exclamation part. Yes. Point. So, um, it's like going away for a while really gets me the treatment. Yep. We get no, we say, where's the will? <laughs> Where there's no will, there's no way. Yeah, I'll definitely do the Seawolf. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking the question mark away. Because um, I was begging you to do the Seawolf for months, and you finally put it on the schedule, so. Yeah, I think um, Evan uh, was like, I'm going to be away. And it says, as Evan's vacation, Evan not available, but he's he's booked us on for that because he wants that one too. So. That's going to be good. Um, but I, yeah, I, th- I somehow think there's more floating around in the background. I can't think what they are. So, uh, there is also, uh, a weird fiction story from like nine, 1890s, um, from the yellow book called Prince Albrecht and the Snake Lady, which is narrated by Evan. It was in the new weird collection, I think is where he found it. 
Um, so it's got a snake lady. Well, <laughs> am I into snake ladies? Is this something that I'm not? <laughs> I mean, for? I am. Uh, isn't everybody? Um, it certainly sounds fascinating. <laughs> I, I uh, only thing I like better than snake ladies is spider ladies. <laughs> a spider. I got a spider woman story from yesterday called the spider and the fly. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is going to be a spider woman story. I said to my student and, uh, by the bottom of the uh, first page, I'm like 99% sure this is going to be a spider woman story. And then like the next page is like, this is going to be a spider woman story. And turned out to be a spider woman story. Uh, she gets bitten by a, uh, a spider, not a radioactive spider, unfortunately. Um, her husband is very, um, uh, solicitous and, you know, kisses her injury, washes her wound, uh, <laughs> ties it up with a, um, uh, you know, nice piece of cloth. And then, uh, she, no- he notices she starts doing spider-like behavior, but he's like, it, it's, it's, it's fine. You know, it's just my imagination. Then, uh, he sees her do something really weird and he, he runs out the front door and through the fields across, comes back an hour later. It's like, it's all in my head. And then the next, uh, next thing you know, she's like, Hey, uh, hubby, you know what I'd like? I'd like you to become fat. He's <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you mean? A fat like that friend of ours whose name, you know, comes up and then, um, you always called him gr- a green bottle, <laughs> uh, a fat like a big green bottle fly. <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, perfectly normal. And then he sees her doing something else weird, and he runs out the front door down across the fields and comes back later that night. And uh, she's sitting on the porch and says, you know what I'd like, honey? And what's that, dear? I'd like a hammock. <laughs> so mm-hmm. he goes and buys her a hammock, uh, comes back uh, from town, uh, sets up the hammock on the front porch, Um and then he goes, you know, make a sandwich or something. When he comes back, the hammock's gone. I was like, what the hell? Where, where'd my hammock go? And then uh, he says, well, yeah, I'll ask the servants. He asked the servants. They don't know anything about it. Um, he goes back to town, buys another hammock, comes back, hides behind the bushes, and watches his wife steal the hammock and go inside the house. He searches the whole house, can't find her. <laughs> goes upstairs. Um Listens at the at the attic door, tries the handle, it's locked. And he's like, oh my God. <laughs> Goes back downstairs, <laughs> makes himself a sandwich or whatever. Um, and then late at night, he's like, This is this is getting ridiculous. He goes upstairs, kicks kicks the attic door open. It's pitch black in there. Um, he's like, Honey, where are you? And then basically he gets wrapped up. <laughs> in a sticky glue like strands of something and that's the end of the story (laughs) literally (laughs) spider woman story so how did your student like it he 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 dug it he thought it was good i mean it's only three pages don't you want don't you want to read a story like that i like spider woman stories yeah i liked having it told to me though yeah yeah very special it is it is it's nice to have people recount plots for you. That's how I got into reading. It's like, yeah, I want to read that. Okay. Um, so, uh, we talked about Trish's veggies. Uh, <laughs> got Cora straightened out on pornography. Okay. We heard about Will's uh, beach reads. I think uh, we're ready to do a show on, uh, what's this book called? Long, the long, the tomorrow. long Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Long Tomorrow. Yeah. 
Uh, and uh, in tr- keeping with the tradition I've started, I now have a copy of paperback of the Star King I found in the thrift shop for for two dollars, just like I found a copy of The Long Tomorrow for two bucks. So all you have to do to make me do a show now is just plant a uh, an old science fiction <laughs> book at the local thrift shop for two bucks, and I'll buy it. <laughs> I think my my copy of the Star King was also it was a it's a used a used book it was from a used bookstore mm-hmm. I think you know it was at the university they have was a store which had used books and sometimes they had science fiction books books English language ones and that's I think where I got my copy of the Star King from but my copy of the Long Tomorrow is one I actually bought for the full price in a shop with one of the Golan's masterworks copies mm. Golan's science fiction masterworks those are nice. Yeah. No, they used to be nice. Have you seen the latest ones? The latest ones are not nice. They're horrible. Mm. Oh my god, they're so ugly. The one for <laughs> what was the one for uh uh the one we just did? A Heinlein's Orphans of the Sky? Mm. The one with the two two heads and there was another oh Heinlein with a really terrible cover. Oh my god, that is like the worst Photoshop. Has nothing to do with the story other than there's a character with two heads. Uh, publishing is in massive decline. I think we have to agree. Yeah, certainly. Uh, you often, you occasionally see uh, on brand, not on, on classic reprints or something, but on brand new science fiction books, you see the same sort of stock photos. Oh my God, well, it's Exactly terrible. the same stock art you see uh, you see um, on self-published books and basically they don't have an art department. Self-publisher usually doesn't have an art department. Yeah. And can't do, do you it, could use like a nice painting from the public domain, everywhere. and they don't. That they, they're um they put less than half a quarter of an ass in there into mm. their work. It's terrible. I mean, it used to be common to put uh, public domain paintings on on all sorts of books. Yes, books. In Germany even created a style that they they took um, took that they took details of public domain paintings, uh, paintings naked Venus or don't know anatom something by Rembrandt, put them on a black background and then did the, then added the, the title of the books. And this was a really common style for crime novels at, uh, at some point. I, 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 don't, I don't like that either, but, uh, yeah, but it's, it's not worse, it right? Popular. Yeah. Because one series which had these covers became extremely popular and so suddenly all of them did it. Did it. So when I see this public domain image... Uh, Clipped on a black background with a title, I immediately think crime novel. Yeah, <laughs> even yeah. though it's probably not a crime novel, novel because it's just uh, the style that was really popular in the early two thousands or something. But uh, they did a lot of these these um, clip public domains. A um, lot of German language books I have have covers of this style, also classics and and so on, which is okay. Just, I mean, just the hire an artist. Yeah, they're not that expensive. You get a nice mm-hmm. artist. They mm. have some style. They do something based on the actual story. That's the way to do it. Or, you know, yeah. hire Jesse. I'll do a better job of photoshopping some old public domain art. I, I don't even want to do it. I'll do it because it's a principle of the thing. <laughs> you, don't have, you don't have to pay me. Just don't put out crappy covers. It's so bad. I do. do. I try to do make good covers for my self-published books. books. Sometimes I use I use stock art sometimes and sometimes... And public domain, if there's something which is suitable for, for example, if it's historical fiction, it's usually public domain, some kind of public domain art because there's so much you can use. <laughs> there was a uh, uh, Deutsche Welle uh, documentary about Philip K. Dick, and uh, they were. Oh, the ditch. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Try- I 
can't remember. It's on YouTube. Was it in English or yeah, a German uh, one? Definitely in English. Because Deutsche Welle das uh, is a the international broadcast yeah. service. Broadcast it's it's the propaganda arm of Including the Klingen. German Yeah, it's a, it's a propaganda. It's, yeah. It used to be propaganda. It's a propaganda thing, thing or at least it's used. It still is, I think, in some yes, ways. Yes, <laughs> it oh, 100% is. But uh, they did a documentary on Philip K. Dick, and uh, I was watching it, and I'm like, hey, I did that art. <laughs> like, I'm pointing at the screen, and I'm like, hey, that's the art I did. So they found it on, uh, it was for a story called Rug, his first published story, which mm-hmm. has no, uh, or professional published story. It has no art. It's in uh, <laughs> FNSF, uh, which didn't have art. And so I'm like, every post I put up on the website has to have art. So I, I made art for it and it's pretty good. It's like a, it's a trash can, um, that has a lid coming off and the lid is shooting like a beam of light down towards the, la- the trash can. Um, because that's what happens in the story. It's basically about aliens and trash cans. So the saucer of the lid, if you type in Rug, uh, and Philip K. Dick, R-O-O-G, you'll see it. It's, it's fairly prominent on the internet. Um, but yeah, every once in a while, I see, I see like, yeah, hey, that's the photoshopping I did <laughs> um, somewhere on the internet. I think I tweeted about it as well. It's not You that. tweeted about something? Wow. I, no, yeah, sorry. Sorry. That's kind of obvious, right? It goes without saying. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, literally the first thing which shows up. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it looks good, and I think yeah. it's probably, of course, if it is the only cover this ever had, is the only artwork. Sorry, other people have made <laughs> art, but it's not this ever based had, on. Then uh, they yeah. will use it. I mean, there are some stories which have almost no art, no artists. And if you want to talk about them, want some kind of illustrations, you use whatever you can find. The next, uh, the next one that comes up that is halfway decent is uh, by uh, Mike Vendetti. And all he did was take the footer from the final uh, part of the story, uh, which is unrelated, but does have a dog in it. It's a robot walking a dog. And that's actually pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not related to what happens in the story. My trash can is also a fence. Um, and the story is about a dog and a uh, trash can and a fence. It's great. It's a great little story. I'll tell it to you sometime, Will. <laughs> Sounds good. I, I mean, Don't I do like the I've ever read it. He, yeah, it's really, really good read. And and surprisingly public domain. Um, Even though, uh, not Anthony Boucher, who, uh, whoever was the FNS guy was saying, no, it isn't. I'm like, yeah, it is. Um, anyways, let's uh, let's do a show on uh, a Lee Brackett novel, shall we? Let's do a show. All right, here we go. Um, Jesse, Will, uh, Trish, Probably. <laughs> Cora. Okay. Here we go. <laughs>